Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, we have a lot in store for you. I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. John Yonides. We have a far-ranging two-hour conversation on many things in science, meta-research, and COVID-19. You won't want to miss it. Then, I'm joined by Mary Elizabeth Percival. Dr. Percival has a new study in AML that is simply amazing. You won't want to miss this discussion. So, mostly COVID with a sprinkling of cancer. That's what you're getting on this week's Plenary Session. Enjoy. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back here in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. John Yonides. Dr. Yonides is professor of medicine at Stanford University, and he is joining me via Zoom from Berlin. Dr. Yonides, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. The pleasure is all mine, Vinay. Thank you for inviting me. I have so much to talk to you about because obviously it's it's such a critical time and there's so many scientific and policy decisions that are being made. But I think this is the first time I've ever had you on the podcast. I thought it might be helpful to give listeners some sense of your background. Um, You were born in the United States, but you're from Greece, um, and you spent most of your childhood in Greece. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I was uh, born in New York, but uh, I grew up mostly in Athens, uh, and uh, I went back to the States uh, uh, after I finished medical school in in Athens, then I uh, went back to Europe uh, and then went back to the States. So I think myself between two continents. I see. And your your parents are academics as well. Uh, they're both physician scientists. Uh, my, my father has passed away. He was uh, a cardiologist uh, and uh, my mother, uh, microbiologist and infectious disease specialist. So at an early age, did you know that you were going to be a physician scientist or did that come later? I, I think that uh, I, I had lots of exposure to, to both medicine and, uh, and science from an early age. I, I, I remember my mother was taking me to all the uh, scientific uh, conferences. I was sitting on the, the front row uh, reading my own books as a little child and listening to prestigious professors uh, lecturing away, yeah. uh, not paying much attention to them. Uh, so so the, the, there was an environment that uh, uh, there was medicine and and, uh, and uh, research uh, being prominent. I remember my, my parents uh, working very late to do their research projects uh, with all these uh, uh, papers floating on, on big tables. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think probably that uh, that was something that was quite an influence uh, on, uh, on my early exposures. You also, I've read repeatedly that as a child, you were very interested in mathematics. I think that's something that a lot of people who, who go into science share. Um, what was it about math that captured your interest? And what was it that ultimately made you feel like you're not going to do math only? I, I always loved numbers and, and mathematics as, as a little kid. 
it was uh, like a, a pastime and a game for the entire family and friends. Uh, oh, let's get John and ask him to run calculations for for us uh, with three and four digit numbers uh, you know, as a four year old. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I I had to translate everything to numbers. I I, I remember that. Uh, uh, when I was six or seven years old, uh, I started creating scales of love uh, for all my uh, family and friends. Uh, and they had like two decimal points. And every week I would release the new scale. Uh, so, you know, my aunt uh, would uh, uh, increase by 2.24 points of love. I, I, everything had to be measured very precisely. Uh -huh. Quantified, I, I, yeah. And quantified. And... Uh, you know, then, I mean, this became very dominant. I, I loved both numbers and, and mathematics uh, in, in all their manifestations. Uh, uh, but I, I also realized that I wanted to do something that would help people. And medicine clearly was about helping people, about saving lives, about uh, making lives uh, better for, uh, for others who are disadvantaged in different ways. And I, I just couldn't feel content to... Uh, remain in an abstract field with with abstract numbers or with abstract equations. I, you know, medicine seemed to have a force on its own that was very different, and uh, I, I had to go for it. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I think so. Then naturally, a clash is going to occur in your life because anyone who pursues these pure sciences where things are neat and quantified, the moment they hit medicine where things are messy and uncertain, there's something that happens. When was that for you, where you realized that all of the models, all of the science that looks so good in a textbook doesn't look so good in the real world? I think that I was going through a, a perpetual uh, disillusionment. Uh, I, I think that uh, at, at medical school, uh, of course, I had lots of textbooks and spending long hours in the library with scientific articles, uh, and all of that was fascinating. But as soon as you start going into clinic and seeing patients and seeing how they're handled and how they're treated, how you try to make a diagnosis, it's, it's all gone. Mm, yeah, it's all gone. <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with, yeah. uh, with what you have learned. It has nothing to do with the perfect theories, with, yeah. with pathophysiology, even let alone with evidence. You know, I, I think that when I trained evidence-based medicine, uh, was more like a dream, uh, yeah. So I, I had that that disillusionment very early, um, and uh, I, I was struggling to see how you can somehow get back more uh, evidence, more quantitation, uh, uh, more reasoning, more science into what was happening around me in uh, in my medical experience. I think my my major revelation was uh, when I first met the late Tom Chalmers and uh, uh, Joe Lau in 1992. Uh, Tom was the first person to do a randomized trial in the U.S. Uh, he was the first uh, person who popularized meta-analysis uh, for medicine and uh, uh, really a brilliant person, uh, a leader in, in evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it was a revelation for me to, to see that, yes, this probably can happen. You, you can, uh, you can you have, can have uh, yeah. some science that is tailored also to the needs of medicine. It's not just abstract science. It's, it's applied science, but it has a very strong quantitative component and it can make a difference eventually. So I think that that was probably the turning point. 
I guess my two favorite Tom Chalmers quotes are, one only has to visit the graveyard of discarded therapies to know how many patients benefited from being assigned to a control arm. And one that you picked up on in, in a paper of yours in JAMA, which is randomize the first patient. Um, and the importance of how equipoise can be lost when we delay randomization, and then we end up in a situation where we have no idea what we're doing. So uh, you- Tom yeah. was really an yeah. absolutely marvelous person, yeah. So you were in Tufts then in the early 1990s with Joseph Lau, who is a, another seminal figure in evidence-based medicine, but it wasn't called that back then. Uh, I don't think Gordon had named it, uh, hadn't added that moniker, but people were doing clinical appraisal. Um, that must have been an exciting time, you know, the work of Sackett in the late 1980s, um, the early 1990s, a number of different groups going, uh, doing this. And for you, it must have been realizing that this is a natural fit for your own interests and background. Absolutely. I, at, at the same time, I was uh, training in infectious diseases. Uh, so in a way, I was doing a double fellowship, one on clinical appraisal and, and uh, healthcare research research. Uh, at the time that evidence-based medicine was first coined as, as a term, and the other in, uh, in infectious diseases. And uh, uh, obviously these two worlds uh, uh, had lots to share, but also lots of things that they would clash. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that we have seen that uh, clash of, of uh, world theories and approaches in the COVID-19 era even more so. I think so too. I was telling somebody that um, one of the experiences that clinicians have have that's very hard to kind of articulate is that we have models, we have pathophysiology, we have Starling's Law of the Heart. I joke that when you diurese a patient and their contractility gets better, you say Starling's Law of the Heart, and when it doesn't get better, you forget you ever knew Starling's Law of the Heart, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> but I think that the point about being a clinician is on a, on a monthly basis, a model that I have constructed in my mind is shattered on a monthly basis 15 times, 20 times. My understanding of someone's cancer biology is shattered. My understanding of their, their pulmonary artery pressures are shattered because the model doesn't predict what happens when we actually do something. That's an experience that people with different backgrounds, perhaps more theoretical backgrounds, epidemiology backgrounds, they may not have that visceral experience. Do you think that to some degree that clinical experience shapes the way you think about the best laid models or, or those sorts of things? I think that we are all shaped by different inputs and different experiences, but uh, having the clinical experience, I think, is indispensable for uh, really dealing with uh, problems that that uh, you know patients uh, uh, and physicians would care about. Uh, so that that repeated failure, as you describe it, you know, that lack of fit yeah, lack <laughs> and of fit. that surprise factor, uh, that heterogeneity, uh, also. You, you start seeing statistics and theory translated to real life. Mm. And, you know, real life is, is, a, is a miracle, is a wonder. <laughs> it's, it's also a challenge. Uh, so no model can ever approximate real life. I, th I think that we need to take that for granted. Models have some use. They have some uh, perhaps uh, attraction because they simplify things for us. They put us in some order. Uh, but their fate is to be refuted sooner or later. And I, I think that uh, if we're willing to try to refute them sooner rather than later, this is going to be good. <laughs> hmm. You know, many people hail your 2005 paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, as sort of a seminal moment in your career and, is, and, and, and a very important paper. And in fact, it has been 
a much, a widely cited paper and widely discussed. And I think it's a terrific paper. Don't get me wrong. But I think part of the reason why it's such a popular paper of yours is that it brings out something that many scientists have struggled with on the inside, which is a realization that much of what they're reading, much of what they see, their frustration that they do not believe that those things are true. Nevertheless, they publish it. They seek to promulgate it. Um, and, and, and it was an elegant paper in the sense that y- you basically said, we know a few things are true, true about science. We know there's a certain pretest probability we'll be finding new things out. And we know that when there's a hot field, a lot of people are going to be probing it. Uh, we know that we like to find things, so we're going to be biased looking to find things. And when you put a number of these numerical assumptions together, it would, under a number of plausible scenarios, it is easily the case that more than 50% of what you might read is actually not true. Is that a fair sort of summary? And, 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 and what led you to think about this? I think it is a fair summary. And uh, in a way, that paper summarized uh, in, in a theoretical framework uh, lots of my experiences over the, the previous uh, uh, 15 years or, or more uh, being exposed to uh, medicine as, as a physician and as a researcher. Uh, I, I think that it, it didn't come out of nowhere. I, I think that many people had collected empirical data uh, our experience with evidence-based medicine when things started was that we believed that uh, uh, suddenly everything will fall in order and everything will be great. And very quickly, both myself and many others realized that, no, nothing was in order and everything was just uh, in ruins. <laughs> uh, evidence was in ruins. It was a desert that uh, we had to cross. And uh, there were very few exceptions where, where evidence was strong reproducible, uh, making sense, and, and eventually useful. So it, 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 it is a theoretical paper in a way, but it includes a lot of empirical understanding and uh, empirical data, both at a personal level and at the level of the evidence-based literature that had accumulated over the years. Uh, it, 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 it is buttressed by that empirical uh, assessment of reality in, uh, in biomedicine. In my mind, I actually think the seminal, I mean, I think this is, this, is, this is the first of several seminal papers, but I think the seminal paper is the potential importance of data that does not exist or papers that do not exist, the JAMA paper. And, and if I were to describe that to people, I would say this is sort of a, maybe a decade later in your career. You've had more time to think about these issues you've generated and others have generated a wealth of empirical data that confirms, I think, the central tenets of why most published research findings are false. But in this paper, the potential importance of, of data that does not exist, you kind of sit on one would, you know, you're sitting on God's shoulder looking at all scientists. And you see that scientists are doing all these things all the time, looking at data sets, probing questions, different data sets, some questions, vitamin D and uh, mortality. Those are seductive questions. Coffee. My goodness, I'm drinking a cup right now. Coffee and mortality. <laughs> Everyone wants to know about coffee. But does anyone want to know about grapefruits or um, plums? No, they want to know about berries. They want to know about tea. And so you're sitting up there and you're looking, what are all the questions scientists are looking at? All the data sets, all the analytical flexibility, all the covariates they can put in the model, and all the high, on, and on a daily basis, how many potential papers are they generating? And you know, maybe it's 10 to the power 5, 10 to the power 6, 10 to the power 7 papers. Every day, they're just generating all these results. And then they think about, should I tell my PI about this? Oh, this is uninteresting. This is boring. This is dull. But no, this is... This broccoli is, is actually linked to something. This is useful. And, 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 and the net result of this whole system where people are just generating ideas all the time, and there are all these selection filters to look for 
seductive and significant findings is that the tip of the iceberg, the thing we see that we call science, that might be a very skewed portrait of the world. Um, and, and that's why I, I, I frame these two papers as sort of, they're two, they're two sides of the elephant, if you will. Do you see it that way? I, I think that uh, that that paper, which was more of a conceptual uh, perspective uh, in in JAMA, uh, as you say, it is describing uh, the the vast number of studies that could have existed but they don't exist. We don't see them published uh, for various reasons. They have not materialized, or if they have materialized, they were never presented, they were never published, they were never narrated. Uh, so I, I think that there's a very strong drive to create narratives in science. And these narratives could be about specific hypotheses. They could be about specific uh, sub-disciplines. There would be sometimes entire disciplines. Uh, disciplines are created out of narratives yeah. where one or usually many scientists kind of join forces in believing that uh, there's something here. There, there's something that is beyond noise, beyond chance, uh, uh, something worthwhile that uh, we need to spend time and invest uh, hundreds and millions of dollars or billions of dollars and publish sometimes uh, hundreds of thousands of, of papers. Uh, and there's no guarantee that, that really what we select to materialize out of these multiple universes, you know, the one universe or yeah. the few universes that materialize out of multiple millions of, of potential universes is, is really the most correct, uh, let alone the most useful when it comes to, to medical applications. I think that, that many disciplines are just operating in, in that fashion and their credibility and utility is, is uh, you know, extremely limited. Uh, and I, I think I have uh, probably clashed with, with some powerful communities, for example, in nutritional epidemiology, uh, where I felt that that was pretty much what was happening yeah. most of the time. Uh, for, for someone who is within that universe, this sounds like anathema. I mean, yeah. it sounds like, uh, someone's trying to, to pull down my world, uh, destroy me and, and my progeny and my papers. And, um, and I can sympathize with, with that view. Uh, at the same time, uh, my, my goal is not to destroy anyone. My, my goal is to, to see if there's some more fruitful way to, uh, diversify and, and reach some more credible uh, research, uh, a universe that is more real eventually. And uh, when it comes to medical applications, also more useful, you know, saving lives, for example, that's the end product in, in medicine. It's not just curiosity. Uh, I, I, I think that, that to, to do this, one needs to take a step back, perhaps, uh, rather than a step forward. <laughs> um, say, what are we doing? Uh, are we really serious? Uh, will we continue doing that? Uh, is it worthwhile having another 100,000 papers yeah, on this? Right. Have we not had enough? Right. Uh, life is short. <laughs> uh, we need to spend it on something different, to do something different, uh, and then take the step forward to do something different uh, that would be more meaningful and, uh, and more useful. Your background is your parents are, are Greek physicians. My, my parents, of course, are from India. And I think nutrition is one of the things that I find so fascinating because to my parents, there was never a question of nutrition. They knew what to eat, they knew when to eat it, and they knew what was good for you and what was bad for you and how much was too much and those things. And I think that kind of food culture is very strong, I think, in Greece, in Italy, in a number of sort of, of, of these nations. In the United States, I think it's a different world. People don't have a sort of cultural sense of what to eat, when to eat. The shifting fads and shifting dogma in the nutrition field is vast. And that has allowed, I think, 
the nutrition scientists, I'm going to put them in quotes, um, you know, to create a, an industry, really. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling industry of grants, hundreds of millions of dollars of grants, postdoctoral scientists. You get really sharp scientists who they may not know a lot about clinical medicine and they think what are the most important questions out there it must be what you eat. Of course, it's uh, natural to assume that what you're eating is the most important question. Um, and so in the United States, I think we are one of the main, I think maybe not the only, but one of the main culprits in generating, you know, should I drink one more cup of coffee? Should I drink, you know, have one, should I eat some spinach? Should I eat a fermented vegetable? Um, these are questions that most societies did not, have not struggled with, uh, for most of human uh, civilization. Uh, and yet in, we uniquely are in a moment in time where we struggle with these questions. And I fear that, that all our papers is no better than the sort of way in which my parents decided what was good for you and what was bad for you. It's the same truth claim that there's some plausibility that they're right, but not a lot of plausibility. How do you think? Do you, do you think there's any truth to that view? There is a lot of truth to, to that view. I, I, I think that uh, nutrition is important. I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to some uh, observations like obesity uh, and its impact on on health, I, I think it's it's really horrible. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, some some big questions, uh, and eventually the ability to maintain some some reasonable uh, weight, uh, I think, do make a big difference for for health outcomes across multiple dimensions and for multiple diseases. But in, instead of focusing on these big questions that probably do matter the most, uh, we tend to focus on on minutia that uh, are are almost intractable. Uh, just by definition, just based on the type of questions being asked, yeah. our ability to measure them with uh, sufficient precision, the research environment that is just creating a, a huge uh, opportunity for perpetuated selection and uh, selective reporting bias, our statistical models that are completely non-fit to this type of research, and the designs that uh, just have very little chance of being salvaged to to try to address this type of question. So, the fact that, that there's hundreds of thousands of papers justify doing even more of them. But, but the question is, uh, why? And, you know, where are we heading? We are ignoring the big problems and instead kind of dissolving our, our narrative and our attention to these tiny, implausible, impossible, uh, impracticable uh, details that, that are, are, you know, may, maybe never going to be settled uh, for good with, uh, with very high certainty. Yeah. I think there's almost like two worlds of nutrition. There's the nutrition that can save people's lives and solve obesity. That's the nutrition questions about what I think billions of people should be eating and, and, and should they have what food should they have access to and, and what sort of refined and processed foods are, are dangerous. And then there's the nutrition questions for the elite. For those of us who have access to whatever we want, should we eat an extra macadamia nut? Should I drink an espresso? <laughs> should I sit, you know, should I have a certain berry? And those are the questions that we are asking and answering because those are the questions that people who read the New York Times health section want to read about, but they're not the real most impactful nutrition questions globally. Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's lots of people who are starving to death. I mean, we have over a billion people who are starving or very near to the starvation threshold around the world with uh, about 200 million more uh, due to the COVID pandemic and the measures taken uh, so I, I think that this is very urgent. We have a very high prevalence and increasing in many countries of, of fluoride obesity. Uh, I think these are extremely important questions and it's extremely important to find ways to, to deal with them 
uh, as you say, I, I, I just can't believe that so many smart, talented people are, are just wasting their time on uh, whether one more macadamia nut will make a difference. It, it's just, it's just sad. <laughs> yeah, it's just sad. And it's, I mean, entirely implausible. Um, I want to talk about one more thing before we dive into COVID, because I think listeners need to have some sense of your background to really understand, I think, your thinking on this topic. Um, in, in, in a more sort of in a more sort of nuanced and thoughtful way, why you approach this with the way you approach this. I want to talk about Theranos. Theranos now to everyone is the the symbol of of Silicon Valley bullshit artists, you know, just creating creating something out of thin air and just hyping and talking and, and there's nothing behind the product. But a year before John Carreyrou wrote the first of several articles that ended up winning uh, the prize for the, the Wall Street Journal, you were walking by the Theranos building in Palo Alto. You saw the flashy sign and you thought to yourself, let me look up this. What are they doing? And you PubMeted them and you found zero entries. And you ended up writing a piece on that about stealth science. I wonder if you might talk about your intuition there and, 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 what, and what, you, what you found. As you say, I came across Theranos while walking and the name sounds Greek. <laughs> uh, it's very close to Tyrannos, which is uh, tyrant, and uh, Thanatos, which is death. Yeah. So I said, that doesn't look, look like a good name <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. And let me see what, what these people are up to. I mean, there's all these uh, uh, amazing startups in uh, uh, in Silicon Valley next to, to Stanford. Um, so I, I, as you say, I, I realized that they were promising to disrupt the, the entire healthcare system and change medicine completely from its roots. Uh, what they wanted to do sounded very interesting, you know, be able to do testing with a hundred times less cost uh, and a uh, hundred times faster and uh, you know, do it very precisely. So I said, well, we have many studies that would benefit if we can run the tests sure. at a hundred times less cost. Uh, let me see how they do that. So I, I did check the literature. I found nothing that they had published. They were even proud for not publishing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote that paper in JAMA that uh, uh, Howard Bauchner was uh, very happy to publish it after it went through a review, including legal review, mm -hmm. uh, because here was a paper uh, at a time when Theranos had the highest valuation than any startup, at a time when politicians, uh, businessmen, entrepreneurs, journalists, but that that was the best thing that has happened to America. Uh, you know, the, the CEO was getting awards right and left and accolades and uh, was called to be like the, the, yeah. the science foster advisor, kid yeah. of, uh, of, uh, of uh, entrepreneurship and science and, uh, and precision medicine and the future and everything. And I was writing a paper that I don't know if their valuation should be $9 billion or $9. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and actually arguing that regardless of whether their technology works or not, for which they had absolutely no evidence to show, their very premise of what they wanted to do to me was wrong. Yeah. Because what they said was that we're going to test far more. Yeah. We're going to have normal people who are healthy test themselves repeatedly yeah. so that, you know, they will find out that they have cancer and then save their lives. Yeah. Goodness, we, we know that that's the, the most horrible idea you can come up with. Yeah. Screening has a few success stories, but, you know, massive screening of asymptomatic people or all kinds of tests, you, you're, you're just entering like, like this is the, the paradise of false positive tests, of overdiagnosis, of wrong interventions, 
of, of skyrocketing healthcare, of, of uh, misery and death to human beings. So yeah. I, I said, even if they're correct, uh, that's a horrible idea. And obviously Theranos didn't like that. Uh, I, I heard from their general counsel. Uh, they said that, uh, uh, how about if I uh, recant and uh, uh, meet with uh, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the CEO, and and we can write uh, a new editorial together in JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine saying that now I'm convinced yeah. that I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but but I, I felt that that was the right thing to say and the right thing to do at that time, even though it was probably not very popular uh, when I said it. And I think that that's, I mean, there's two things here. One is, of course, the reason I bring it up is the meta commentary, which was when you said it, it wasn't popular. That's going to be a theme that emerges in a minute. Um, but also because it was quite prescient. I mean, in a number of ways. One is that, you know, they hadn't published any sort of studies of analytical validity. The next is something that I think the Silicon Valley is still plagued with. I read about these companies like Grail, and they're going to do a blood-based cancer screening to find cancer early. And some of these companies, my understanding is they have an uncontrolled study of 50,000 people going on screening. I say an uncontrolled study of 50,000 people, you might as well do an uncontrolled study of five people. You're going to get no information out of that. It's just a waste of time because I don't know if they live longer or live better. I'm sure you're going to find a lot of things, just as we would find things if we'd had a daily MRI. You and I would find all sorts of things in our bodies. We would be worried. We would get surgeries. We would feel satisfied. We might feel cured, but we wouldn't live any longer. And if anything, more of our days would be at post-op convalescence. Um, and, and one really wonders with these companies. But the people who I think are investing and run the companies, they are disconnected from the apparatus of clinical medicine. And that's why they think that more testing is always better. Um, I think to some degree, our, our technology fails us because with my computer, you, you somebody can take that apart to the bare bones and rebuild it. But with the body, we can't do any such thing. And so we think we have more control than we do. Clearly, human bodies are, are not computers. And uh, I, I think that um, more information is not necessarily better than less information. In, in, in many cases, uh, having no information <laughs> is the best thing that can happen to you. I mean, you want information in situations where there's a turning point and there is an opportunity cost, uh, where you also have interventions that can make a difference and uh, making these interventions earlier would be better than not knowing about the problem and uh, delaying. These are not really uh, very frequent. I, I think in the vast majority of cases, information is just asking for trouble. You're, you're just going to find yourself in a huge mess, as you described, with with very unpredictable circumstances and, uh, and consequences. Now let's turn to COVID-19. We've had a chance to, I think, give listeners some background and talk about pleasant topics. Now let's talk about COVID-19. So I think, um, you know, in mid-March, I think it was in mid-March, where you wrote an op-ed for STAT about um, the evidence-based fiasco of COVID-19. I suspect, like many op-eds, you know, the title wasn't probably, maybe not yours, um, but but the, I'll, I'll talk about some of the themes, I think, in that article. One of the themes you allude to was that, um, you know, we're facing this novel virus, and it is unprecedented, and there is a lot of uncertainty. But we are not actively collecting information to resolve the uncertainty things we could be doing is randomly sampling 10,000 people here or there and doing it sequentially and doing PCR tests on them or even collecting blood um, to later run antibody screening tests on them to get some measure of the, of, 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 of the, of the dynamics of this epidemic. 
Um, you did point out that we do have some early preliminary sort of fragments of information with very low event event rates, um, many of which are sort of fragmented. Um, as, uh, case fatality rates, of course, are, are plagued by the availability of testing early in a pandemic, which is lacking. So naturally, they'll be deployed in the sickest people, giving very scary and high numbers of case fatality rates as the WHO's 3%. You, you look to the Diamond Princess cruise ship as a nice example of, and I think at that time, it was one of the only examples of a closed population undergoing testing, which solves a number of problems. It solves the denominator problem. And, you know, the fatality rate there was, I think, you know, much higher than what we believe the IFR is right now. That might be due to a number of factors, which we can talk about. Um, and, but we did get some sense of the dynamics of the fact that even though people are on a cruise ship with recirculating air, um, you know, it's not spreading through, it's not spreading to everybody, but it's spreading to a large number of people. And there's a certain number of fatalities. Um, and, and in your article, I think one of the things you did was you said, let me give you a sense of the, of the possible outcomes, the low end estimates and the high end estimates. High-end estimates would put this close to Spanish flu, 1918. Low-end estimates would put this at, you know, I think something like 10,000, 20,000 deaths per, you know. And, and, we're, and, we're, and, 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 and then the other thing I'd add is this, I think your paper came out just on the heels of the Imperial College London model, which said, you know, one to two million deaths. No matter what you do, you're going to have two million dead bodies real soon. Um, I'm wondering if you might talk through, I guess, first, you know, what led you to write the piece and then let's talk about some of the specifics in it, I guess. So I, I wrote the, the stat op-ed uh, as well as another paper that uh, came out in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation uh, pretty much the same days, uh, because I, I was seeing that this was an extremely serious problem. Uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, had tremendous potential to be a huge disaster, both as a pandemic because of the consequence of the pandemic and also because of the consequences of the measures that we were taking that were unprecedented uh, in terms of scale, in terms of aggressiveness, in, in terms of, of the potential harms that could ensue. So uh, there was no doubt in my mind that, that uh, we had to act very swiftly. Uh, and uh, many people uh, completely misread, which I cannot see how this could happen, uh, the op-ed as if I were to say that, uh, oh, no, don't do anything, just uh, wait until we, we all die uh, from the pandemic. That, that's clearly not the case. And in, in the next few days after I, I published this, uh, uh, I gave several interviews uh, in uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., in Germany, at, at Spiegel, in, in Greece, in Italy. Uh, and I always said that, no, it, of course, we need to go into lockdown. There's no doubt about this right now, because we need to take into account that there is a possibility that the upper range of these uncertain estimates may, may come to pass. And we cannot really risk the possibility of having the Spanish flu uh, again with 50 million deaths. Uh, if, if, if that's the case, the, the way that I put it is that I would lock myself in a refrigerator mm -hmm. and tell people not to open the door until the epidemic had passed. Uh, just make sure that I have some food. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but, but clearly the uncertainty that we had was tremendous because, uh, the Imperial College said 2.2 million deaths in the U.S., uh, you know, 40, 50 million or more, uh, around the world. Uh, but it could be far, far, far less than that. And if it were far less than that, many of the measures that we were taking 
had tremendous repercussions, not just on the economy, but at society at large, on health outcomes, on life and death. It, they could translate to far more deaths compared to uh, whatever we might be saving uh, for deaths from COVID-19. Uh, actually, it's even unclear whether the draconian horizontal measures did save any lives. Uh, you know, there, there are some papers that, that say so, but uh, we have rerun the calculations. For example, we have rerun the Imperial College model that was published in Nature yeah. and claimed that lockdown did save lives. And we have used another model that Imperial College published. Uh, and that other model by the same team shows absolutely no benefit from lockdown. Uh, in fact, that second model from the same team has a much better fit to the data compared to the first model that they published, which is, you know, even completely implausible. I mean, the, the assumptions that it makes, uh, you don't even need to look at the fit of the data. It, it, it's just completely impossible that, that that would happen, that interventions, for example, would be like magic sticks, yeah. uh, immediately decreasing everything by 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. Um, so I, I, asked for evidence. I said, you know, we need to act, but please, we need to collect evidence very quickly. And that evidence should be as accurate, as unbiased as possible. We need to know how lethal the virus is, who it affects, what kind of risk stratification we get, how widely it is spreading, to be able to modify our measures and to be able to reach some strategies of dealing with the virus more effectively uh, and avoiding the harms of the draconian measures. Um, I, I think that many people felt that that was the right thing to do. I got zillions of people who communicated with me, including hundreds of leading scientists who said they fully agree with what I say and they fully supported. But at the same time, there were many who also uh, attacked me very fiercely. Uh, and the way that I was attacked, I got many emails from these leading scientists who said, congratulations. That's exactly how things are, but we cannot talk because the environment is such that we will be smeared, we will be destroyed, we will be canceled if we dare say that you're right, if we dare say that, uh, wait a second, we need some evidence here. Yeah, that's the um, that, that's the last, that's the final theme we're going to talk about is, I think, uh, is a, uh, both how people reacted to this incident, but also I'm curious to get a sense of how you feel your whole career has, you've gone through the phases. I mean, I'm sure in the beginning of your career, what you were doing is not popular. You've been unpopular a couple of times, but you've been popular <laughs> in between, very popular in between. And maybe who knows what the future may hold, popularity. But I, I guess what I would say is, um, I, you know, I, I think the, the question of whether or not you initially supported lockdowns, I also think to some degree is a moot point because I think we're about a week into the lockdown when your paper came out. So lockdown was going on. The only question was how long would it go on? Um, yeah. I think you, one of your points of view was that once you get to two weeks or three weeks, if you're not collecting, I mean, every day your lockdown is a $100 billion, $200 billion, $300 billion day, just an economic shutdown. If you're not spending $1 billion on trying to answer the data question, that is a huge uh, you know, distortion of research priorities. You should be throwing lots of money into answering this question because every day of lockdown is basically like going to Henry Ford's assembly line and, you know, <laughs> sticking something in the assembly line because it's a, you know, they, they wouldn't allow it at a company for it to go on for more than a minute before they say, what the hell are you doing? Don't stop this line. This is a million dollars a minute or something like that, you know? Um, so I, so I, I don't want to get too much into that weed. The other thing, I mean, some people have pointed out, I mean, one of the things that I think has irritated people about your commentary I guess was people have anchored on to that 10,000 which was a figure that you tossed as a as a as sort of a low end estimate. 
I guess I'm curious. Um, I don't know how to even ask it. I mean, when I read the commentary, I don't get the sense that you were saying I predict 10,000. Is that fair to say? You're not predicting that. That was This is a range of, of estimates. Of, of course not. I mean, it, it makes absolutely sense that it, it make, makes no sense that uh, the commentary basic message was we don't know. Yeah. We have tremendous uncertainty. How could I say that we have tremendous uncertainty, but I know exactly that it's going to be 10,000 people right, right, right. are going to die? I, I gave one end of the spectrum, which is like the most optimistic scenario, 10,000 people in the U.S., you know, if you extrapolate population-wise uh, uh, globally, that would be 250,000 people uh, for that season uh, in in the world. And the upper end was Spanish flu, which was 40, 50 million. So I said we have uncertainty in that huge range, and we need to to narrow that uncertainty because it has tremendous repercussions on on what we do and what are the consequences of uh, of what we're doing. Now, what came to pass in different locations around the world? We did see scenarios that were close to the 10,000 equivalent. And in, you know, some locations, probably we, we I don't think we got close yeah, to Spanish the flu, Spanish yeah. flu, but we, we, we got far, far worse. Uh, so, you know, if you take Iceland yeah. uh, with the paper published in you know, General Medicine yeah. recently, that's 10,000. The numbers are exactly yeah. that, these numbers, like 1% uh, prevalence and 0.3% infection fatality rate, as was the most uh favorable example that I could reach for the end of the spectrum. Yeah. And there's some countries that did even better than Iceland. You know, you have uh, Uruguay, for example, uh, that that has like a fourth of that. You have many other countries that have much Maybe lower. Maybe even San Francisco. Data. The city of San Francisco looks like it's on the favorable end. No, it looks yeah, very 70, much yeah. like that example yeah. or, or even better than that. Yeah. But then you have New York, then you have Louisiana, you have, uh, uh, you know, Bergamo, you have uh, some places in Spain, you have some places in, in London that did horribly. They didn't do anywhere close to Spanish flu, yeah. uh, but uh, they did clearly much worse. And now we, we start realizing why that's the case. And uh, some of that diversity, hopefully, is up to us to, to manage, to avoid seeing the disasters and the massacres. You know, we're not completely defenseless against the virus. We, we can do things right and avoid having more massacres. Let's talk about IFR for a second. I mean, you 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 didn't say it outright, but at the time, I think you felt and that that the IFR was not as high as people thought it was. It must be lower. It can't go higher. It can only go down. Why did why was that your intuition at the outset? Um, and 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 then uh, yeah, why was that your intuition at the outset? I mean, because I you know let me just say one more thing. I listened to the monk debate between you and Sten Vermond, and that came out, I think, just a week and a half, a week after um, your initial op-ed. And in that monk debate, uh, I believe, uh, when I listened to it, I believe you, you, you guessed that IFR will settle out between 0.2 and 0.3, or 0.2 and 0.4, something in that range. And, and, and Sten thought it was something like going to come out at 0.7. I think as data accumulates, we'll talk about where we are. But, you know, it is in between there, maybe drifting towards the low end. And as, you know, as time goes on, I think it will only drift down. Why will it only drift down uh, and not drift up? So uh, I, I think my gut feeling was influenced by my infectious disease training rather than my evidence-based training. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, if, if you think of a virus that is spreading like wildfire, as was supposed the case uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, and uh, with an infection fatality rate that is, uh, you know, close to the case fatality rate of 3.4%, a bit less, but, you know, not much less, you know, 1%, 2% or, or something in that ballpark, 
I would have expected uh, by the time I wrote uh, that op-ed in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation paper to have like a million deaths, you know, maybe two million deaths uh, around the world. You know, it, it should have spread very widely uh, outside China and we should have been seeing a couple of million deaths already if, if, if that were the case. Yes. We were not seeing that. So um, it didn't seem to be that we had tremendous undercounting of deaths at, at that point. Uh, so the, 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 the overall picture was not fitting to a situation of an IFR of one, two percent, uh, and a widely spreading virus. So, so my guess and also the estimate that I got from looking at the princess uh, diamond, uh, at the diamond princess, uh, uh, situation, I said, most likely it's going to be between 0.05 to one percent. This is what I put in that op-ed and my gut feeling was that it would be somewhere in the mid-range of that, but maybe lower than the mid-range. What we see now, uh, I have a paper that uh, has been accepted by the bulletin of uh, WHO. It should be coming out soon. Uh, it includes 82 uh, seroprevalence studies and uh, calculations of uh, IFR from these 82 studies. The median is 0.23% across yes. these studies. Yes. And, and the majority of these studies are done actually in locations that uh, have been epicenters of the pandemic. So, you know, they were hard hit. And we do see that IFR is not a constant value uh, in locations where you get lots of nursing home residents being infected. Uh, you have an age structure that is unfavorable, nosocomial infection. You will get very high infection fatality rates. So, you know, New York City, Louisiana, uh, UK, Spain, North and Italy, they all have IFRs that are pretty high. Uh, but in most other locations, IFR is going to be very low. Around the globe, I would think my best estimate would be that IFR is about uh, 0.15%. So we have about uh, a million people uh, for deaths uh, with COVID-19. I would argue that maybe about 700,000 uh, 700 million uh, people have been infected globally. That would be my estimate, which is about 20 times more compared to the documented cases, which is, I, I think, pretty well supported by the data. I mean, we have an underestimation of about 11-fold for the U.S., which has done far more testing than other places. We have underestimations of 50-fold or more for Japan or, or for Iran or uh, India. Uh, it could be 30, 40 times uh, more cases compared to those documented. If, if you run these numbers, you end up having about 700,000 people infected as of late September mm -hmm. and an IFR of 0.15% uh, or so. One of the things you did in that IFR in your meta-analysis, which is available as a preprint, and uh, ha like, like some of your other COVID work has generated a number of comments. Um, <laughs> one of the things you did was you you, you did some adjustment, some lag lagging. Um, you know, I don't think people understand the, the the logic of that. Could you explain why you're lagging and, and what does that accomplish? So there's different types of adjustments that you need to make. Um, one adjustment is to try to correspond the infections, the number of people infected versus the number of deaths that this corresponds to. Mm -hmm. And to do that, there's no perfect way, mm -hmm. but you need to take into account how long it takes to develop antibodies which typically is a couple of weeks uh, or more for IgG, for example. Uh -huh. 
and for IgA, uh, and also the lag for deaths from the time of infection, yes. uh, which is longer. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, on average 23 days or so, 21 days. Uh, so you need to account for that differential. But of course, this is an approximation because you may have some situations where people get infected and they die very fast. Yes. Uh, so it's far less. Uh, and you may have some situations where people just uh, stay in the ICU much longer. So unavoidably, there is an approximation, but we, you need to make an effort to correct for that time lag. And this is what I did. What about Another correcting correct for the, the fact that some may not mount antibodies or may not mount those antibodies detected by the assay? So, so the second correction yeah. that I did uh, was uh, whether uh, you need to correct for the test performance, yeah. uh, which is the sensitivity and the specificity of the test. Whenever studies did that, I took that into account. Okay. And then on top of this, as you say, there's a possibility that uh, some people may not develop antibodies or they may develop different types of antibodies. So I tried to correct for this uh, as much as possible. Uh, again, this is another approximation, but uh, we know with pretty strong evidence that asymptomatic people and people with uh, limited symptoms, they have a less chance of developing antibodies that would be detectable with different tests that we use. And uh, unfortunately, most of the control samples that have been used for validating sensitivity uh, of the test performance uh, for tests being used in these studies have used people with severe symptoms that were clearly documented uh, and were picked, you know, asymptomatic people who were not picked would not be included in these controls. And, and we know from other studies that uh, these people are less likely to develop antibodies. And if they develop antibodies, they're likely to lose them faster. Uh, so yes. titers decrease. Yes. This doesn't mean that they necessarily lose immunity. I mean, immunity is a different thing than detecting antibodies. Yes. There's both false positives and false negatives in that regard. Um, but you need to account for, for that as well. So, so there are these adjustments in the calculations. Um, they could make some difference, but it, they're, they're not really changing the results that much. Uh, so we're talking about a 10% on average change that you would see or 20%. And in fact, probably the correction should be even bigger than that, which which would mean uh, an even lower infection fatality rate than, than what I estimate. Some There are some governmental studies that were not included in your analysis because they were not peer-reviewed publications. You want to comment on that, why you chose not to include those? So I've created four revisions of, <laughs> of this preprint. Uh, and the first version uh, included only uh, studies that uh, were published in peer-reviewed journals, or at least uh, they had full paper preprints. Yes. And uh, in that first version, I said I'm not going to include uh, things that are in press release or yes. people have announced because you cannot really tell much about the design, what was being done. Yes. Now, even the key results very often are missing, and yes. you don't know they're what you're supposed to hear. Uh, in the second version, because many people complained, oh, you're leaving out on purpose uh, some of the key studies that yes. would uh, completely kill your conclusions. And I love <laughs> yeah. to kill my conclusions. I, I'm yeah. very happy to kill my conclusions. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to these people who complained. I decided to start entering data from these uh, national studies for which there were only some sort of press release or announcement with whatever fragmented information was there. And it didn't really make a difference because, of course, uh, uh, then you would include Spain, which, you know, very soon was also published as a full paper anyhow. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but then there were many other 
national studies that had not been available as full papers that had much lower uh, infection fatality rates. So, you know, the, the data really don't change um, in any meaningful way if you include those studies, but I, I felt I should just uh, bring them on board so that people would not complain. <laughs> <laughs> Which is often the case with revisions. In your mind, I mean, is it fair to say that what, what you're doing in your mind is this? I mean, the IFR is a, is, a, is, a, is a waypoint on the road to your destination. And what your destination is, you're in your mind, you're thinking two scenarios. One, you know, we're going to do all these interventions, A, B, C, D. The other world is where we do, you know, A prime, B prime, C prime, maybe something in between, something less, something different. And what you're really trying to answer in your mind is what is the cumulative, um, you know, years of life lost or gained in the population? And of course, the things that go into that calculation are one, the more the virus spreads, obviously that's not good. Um, you know, the more it spreads to the more older people, to frailer people, uh, there are going to be more deaths and there's going to be more years of life lost. On the other hand, the more you shut things down, you're harming young people, you're harming the youth, you're harming people's economy, you're harming um, upward mobility in society, you're creating the preconditions for civil strife, for for despots, for tyrants, for all sorts of sort of unanticipated things. And you're you're slowing down medical services, you're you know, you're doing all these other things. And in your mind, you're building this to some degree, it's going to be not semi-quantitative. It's not going to be perfectly quantitative because we're not going to get quantitative inputs for everything, but we have to construct this kind of worldview. What would the world look like, A or B? And in that worldview, one of the things you're injecting is the IFR. I think to some degree, it's taken on sort of supreme importance that they think, you know, a little bit higher, a little bit lower. But to another degree, um, you know, it, it, the IFR, the first thing it multiplies by is the number of people who may be infected, uh, right? And so, and that's a moving target too, based on how people are bouncing around in a population, uh, based on behavioral changes, um, and, 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 and uh, yeah, and so, so that's also a moving target. IFR is also a moving target based on maybe a medical system is iatrogenically killing people by giving everyone remdesivir and, and hydroxychloroquine high dose and all this <laughs> foolishness that we saw early in the pandemic as well, um, you know, so so I guess I want to I just want to kind of outline that that although not stated explicitly, isn't is that that's the way your mind is thinking about this situation? Yeah, I, I think that that you capture uh, a very vast uh, spread of of, uh, of components that that are important in uh, in trying to to arrive at at some conclusion about what's going on and what we should do. Uh, so indeed, you know, IFR is just one number. And uh, what we see is that it's not a fixed number. It, it's something that can be modulated. It's something that can be different. And, and the good news is that we can make it different. So if, if you have the same proportion of the population being infected, uh, and I'm not saying that we should have people infected just for the sake of being infected. Sure. I never argued you know, for going for herd immunity just for the sake of herd immunity. But let's say that somehow X percentage is going to be infected. Yes. If you avoid having nursing home fail individuals, vulnerable individuals being infected, um, your IFR is going to be tremendously lower. Yes. Uh, if you avoid giving interventions that are harmful, like, for example, hydroxychloroquine apparently uh, must have done quite a bit of harm. Uh, you know, the, the best data that we have from the recent meta-analysis of 26 studies that we yes. completed suggests that maybe there's be. a 10% increase in, in mortality risks. Uh, you know, with with so many millions of people given hydroxychloroquine, we may be talking about a hundred thousand people being killed by hydroxychloroquine. Of course, it may be far less. Uh, yes. We have uncertainty intervals that are pretty wide, but it it could have made a big difference uh, in in many ways. 
if uh, I, I if, just want to add one thing there. It, there's, there's more than that. When you read the original preprints from China, I mean, people are getting seven medicines, six medicines, four medicines. <laughs> I think when we actually sit down and look at what people got in the beginning, I see like full dose heparins, th- uh, t- TPA. Uh, yeah. They're cranking up steroids. Maybe have you know they're they're doing all sorts of crazy things, which is what people do when they're scared, and that can uh, kill but, people though. That kills people. Even if in my current condition, which I, I feel I'm <laughs> yeah, pretty right. healthy, uh, walking long distances in in Berlin. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you give me all these medications, uh, th- there's a good chance that you will kill me. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I, I think that uh, I'm not saying this to blame anyone. I think that many clinicians uh, were completely scared the, seeing these horror uh, stories and, and obviously all of these sick people coming their way. And, you know, it's natural that we just throw the, the sink basket of interventions that we have. But, but, but these are dangerous interventions. They, they can they have harms even in people who are yes. who are healthy. If, yes. you, if you give them to a frail individual, I, I don't think that, that they will make it. So, so I, I think that we can make IFR much lower, and I think that already we see, yes, we see that IFR is becoming lower in most locations around the world. Perhaps because we have a more seasoned management. Probably people are using dexamethasone, which seems to be beneficial. For example, I mean, we have some data from randomized trial showing a, a third of deaths being uh, averted in uh, people who need to be intubated. Uh, so I think IFR can become less. And if we focus on precise interventions in precise settings, in precise individuals, the total fatality rate is going to go down. And at the same time, we will avoid all these repercussions, fatalities, disruption, societal meltdown, economic crisis, disaster, that draconian horizontal measures would entail. Mm-hmm. So there, there's just too much at stake and it cannot all be translated into the same uh, value. I mean, h- how do you translate lost education to uh, the same coin as you know deaths in the ICU? How do you translate loss of democracy, uh, some tyrants and, and dictators in countries really gaining power that they will never want to give away? under these circumstances. How do you translate uh, what came close to pass, but hopefully didn't pass, not having talented people from around the world being able to come to America to to, to really do great science and great scholarship? Uh, these are all costs that uh, some of them we can translate to the same value uh, that might be exchangeable, but many others are impossible to translate. But for anyone with progressive thinking, they need to see that. It's devastating. It's, it's devastating for the U.S. It's even more devastating for people around the world. I mean, we have tuberculosis getting out of control because of lockdowns with 1.5 million people dying, mostly young and middle-aged people dying every year. We have starvation. Again, lockdown is just killing these people massively. We need to do something as quickly as we thought that we need to act when we were struck by the pandemic, that's an equally urgent situation not to do things wrong because there's just too much at stake. Let me ask you this question. Um, you know, we talk about lockdown, draconian measure, shutdown, and then we also need to separate that from behavior, I guess. How do you set? I mean, so my question is, you know, in the pandemic, someday we'll know the answer. We can get all the cell phone tracking data. When people are scared, they're going to do a lot of these things anyway. So what's the delta that comes from the mandate to say, we're not going to open the business? It might be very small. Um, and to be honest, maybe the the civil conflict it provokes 
may not even be worth it. You know, if you want people to stay at home, if you if they feel, I mean, I think so much of this is driven by how people feel. Um, I've had people um, confide in me that, um, you know, one of the great ways you can get data out of this is to look at some of the online dating websites. Um, when people are scared, those are going to go way down. When people are not scared personally, those are going to go way up and people are going to be say, more likely to meet and things like that. And you'll get a real true story of what is going on behind the scenes. You can, you know, there's never been, no one's shut down the roads and had checkpoints, you know, that's why it hasn't gotten to that level. So you can close businesses and want, but if you want to stop people from meeting and getting together, um, it's very difficult in a free society to actually put a halt on that. And and to some degree, I guess I, my question is, how much additional did the lockdown do than what people chose to do themselves? The, the analysis that uh, that we have run with uh, with Aaron Ben-David and with uh, Jay Bhattacharya, uh, you know, we see really no substantial benefit in terms of, uh, of uh, contagion of, of the virus with lockdown compared to other measures. As you say, uh, people get sensitized uh, and they do act. They, they do use social distancing. Uh, many hopefully use masks when, when it, it is appropriate. Uh, you know, some others are, are not convinced. Uh, they will decrease exposures. They will do things that will decrease the risk of, uh, of being infected. Uh, lockdown is a very blunt measure. And, uh, based on the data that we have analyzed, we don't really see having much of an added value on on top of what other people are doing. So, you know, Sweden, I think, managed to do everything that other countries did uh, without imposing lockdown. Uh, and uh, of course, they did have a pretty high death toll, but that was mostly due because they missed uh, the opportunity to to do something for their nursing homes. They they had still lots of staff who were infected who were taking care of uh, nursing home residents, and and then. They have lots of people in nursing homes. This is the, the way that their society works and, and these places were devastated. But, but the societal component, the societal response, building a situation where the population trusts the public health, uh, experts and on their own, they do the right thing. They say, we have a, a serious situation. You know, we, we need to be careful. Um, that's more than enough to, to help contain the virus. I guess, I guess, but I mean, that's a, that's a terrific point uh, on the flip side of it. If, if it is shown to be the case that, that, um, let's say we get county by county cell phone tracking data and we show that counties that instituted lockdown on April 3rd versus April 6th, that the actual, the rate of movement is exactly the same. Then the harm of the, of the intervention is not the harm of the lockdown. It's the harm of the behavioral change, which is a, which is subsequent to the harm of the messaging. It's because they were scared, um, that they changed the behavior. Uh, so I guess what I want to separate is that, you know, lockdown it, I guess it, it, it's easy to identify the lockdown as the thing that led to society shutting down. It might not be the case that it was the lockdown. It might be the media coverage of the pandemic. The, the messaging led to people stopping to work. And the lockdown really was just icing on a cake. Uh, you see what I'm trying to say? And, and both I, for benefits and harms. I, I agree. I, I fully agree with this. And, and we need to be careful to uh, differentiate between lockdown in theory and lockdown in real life. Yeah. Even draconian lockdown is not lockdown because we still have lots of people, uh, like essential workers, like homeless, like, uh, lots of disadvantaged populations who cannot shelter. And, uh, unfortunately, most countries and, and most locations lockdown protects those who do not need to be protected, uh, or, you know, have very low risk. 
and leaves those who need to be protected unprotected because essential workers and homeless and disadvantaged populations cannot be sheltered properly. And they're out there with uh, pretty much unchanged uh, risk of, uh, of being infected and, and, and uh, bearing the consequences of the virus. So it, it creates even more inequality in a sense. I, I would argue if as a society we wanted to do something at a societal level rather than individual responsibility level, I would say give priority to the poor, the disadvantaged, those without health insurance, those uh, uh, who have no place to shelter. We, we have discarded them for, for centuries. Now is the time to do something for them. Having me stay at home, uh, you know, writing papers with lots of mistakes <laughs> and errors uh, or, or lecturing away, uh, that's not going to save the world. Uh, those people who are vulnerable will still be vulnerable. Yeah, that's one thing I want to talk about, which is what can we do now? And then the other theme you relate to is that when decision makers are people who can live on Zoom, I think you have an imbalance in terms of the ways in which we we weigh things. Um, but one thing I just want to touch on is, you know, um, uh, years of life lost goes down as we get older. So the death of an 18-year-old is a lot greater cumulative years of life lost to a society than the death of a 90-year-old, as much as we both love 18-year-olds and 90-year-olds, and I have both in my lives whom I love. Um, uh, uh, th that's just a simple reality of, 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 of what you're losing when somebody passes away. Um, however, the, the IFR gradient for death by age is so steep in the other direction that that um, you know somebody might say to your argument uh, or not to your argument but to an argument that one might make which is that we need a lot of young people to get infected well even if death rates are lower in young people years of life lost are, are are offsetting that to some degree because they're losing many more years but I guess one point to make is that the steepness of these two curves is very different um, that the year that the, the the fatality rate is is Mount Everest and this is a ro is a very gentle slope is that fair to say indeed the the the, the risk gradient differentiates risks that are a thousand fold apart. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the life expectancy, we're talking about differences that are uh, 20 fold apart uh, at, at most. Um, so, yes, the, 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 the two curves are, have very different slopes. And I, I want to make sure that, that it, it's clear that I have never argued that we should just let young people get infected. Yes, you never <laughs> that, argued that. That's, yeah. That would be a huge misunderstanding. Uh, you know, uh, even young people, sometimes they can have bad outcomes. So I think that being cautious and taking precautions and using hygiene measures and avoiding exposures um, makes sense. At the same time, we can still live a normal life, you know, very close to what is a completely normal life uh, without really posing much risk to uh, young people, to middle-aged people, or even to, to old people. Uh, we, we just need to make sure that, that uh, we pay extra attention to locations, settings, and individuals who are at the higher end of that risk scale. Uh, but otherwise, I, I, we don't need to destroy our world. We don't need to, to destroy our society. We do not need to destroy civilization to achieve that. Let's talk about the, I've got two more, two more parts of this. One I want to talk about, the next thing I want to talk about is what can we do now? And the last thing I want to talk about is the, the sort of the, the nebulous, um, how do people respond and how can we 
prevent ourselves from, I think, some of what I think are missteps in response that I think, I mean, I think there's two things to be said. One is, I mean, I think some, uh, you know, we don't all have to agree as scientists, so we can reasonably disagree. That's fair. But at what point do we, you know, really want to take people we disagree with and say, I don't ever want to hear from you. I don't want to, you know, see you. That I think that's the that's the that's the that's the more thing that we can agree that some of those things are wrong even while we disagree. But anyway, let's talk about what we can do now because I think this is an interesting thing. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, we are where we are. You know, we are, it's nothing we can do about the past. It's past. We are stuck here right now in you know late September. And what is going on? I mean, I, this is my I survey of the landscape. Um, there are a number of colleges and for-profit institutions that are doing their very best to get going again. Why? Because they got money in the game. So the NFL is going again. The NBA is going again. If I were to say, if I were to be on God's shoulder and think, you know, what are the most important things in the world? I don't think, you know, NBA might. But you know, but maybe NBA is a way to cool civil strife. Maybe it actually has much more societal gains than I know. Uh, you know, I do love a good basketball, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe it has more of a sort of psychological impact on people. I always jokingly said that if you really want people to stay at home, you know, you don't have to make a mandate, just give everyone free HBO and they'll be home for a month. They'll be home for a month until they can get through Game of Thrones. Um, you know, so, but I mean, it's a joke, but there's some truth to how you can think about different, you know, policy things. Um, okay. So we've got these things running. We've got four, we've got colleges that have, you know, they stand to lose a lot of income if they skip a year. And so they've done a lot of work to try to different strategies from screening everyone on entry, like, uh, you know, I think Alabama and then having a little explosion of cases in the beginning. But thankfully, I don't think too many hospitalizations, too many deaths or things like UIC in Chicago, screening everyone biweekly, where they are, I think, even preventing cases. But I guess the challenge with that is, you know, how long can it be sustained? Can it be sustained till a virus? Those sorts of strategies. So that's the college landscape. Then the private school landscape, you know, I've surveyed a lot of people, lots of private schools. Again, they have a lot of money at stake, so they're going to try to do their best to run um, with lots of precautions. If if anyone gets sick, they're going to have 14 days shut down in that classroom or things like that. They're trying to separate the kids, smaller cohorts as much as possible. Private daycares, they, again, they have to make ends meet. They're try, they're running, I think, to a large degree. Public schools is the interesting place, a piece of the puzzle because public schools in places that are politically leaning one direction, they are much more willing to tolerate these risks than public schools that politically lean another direction, which is a whole nother, you know, something that no one would have predicted that this would have a, a, a left-right political valence to it. Um, wh where do you see in this whole landscape of schools, of businesses, all trying to get back, um, where do you see the missteps? Where do you see the places where you would say, you know, I, I might not do that? And where are the places where you say, I might push a little harder to do to do this? What would you change about the current landscape going forward? So the, the, the current landscape is very fragmented. It's very heterogeneous, as you described. Uh, there is very different solutions being proposed and applied. And there's different segments of the population who are very enthusiastic or, or very uh, aggressive against uh, specific solutions. Uh, and they don't want to adopt them by any means. I think the most important thing is to not panic and to uh, just be tolerant, uh, you know, be tolerant of uncertainty because we have uncertainty about many of these uh, measures and many of these solutions. And um, uh, if if we call people who would disagree with us, uh, you're an idiot. Uh, I, I've never seen someone being convinced just because they were called an idiot. It's, it's not a convincing <laughs> Me argument. Neither. Me neither. Um, so, so, I am biased in favor of trying to get our world uh, open and running and functional. Mm -hmm. uh, so I need to say that up front because my conviction 
And whatever data I read are that uh, if you don't do that, you meet with tremendous repercussions at all levels, health, cost, society, democracy, uh, just name it. With that bias, I, I believe that uh, you should ask specific settings and populations what they're willing to do. Because if uh, if you you try to impose something that is completely out of the question for people that it will be imposed to, uh, you will really need to do a lot of convincing to be able to get them on board. And even then, uh, it will not get its target. So uh, we need to explain why we're doing something and what are we trying to get out of this. I would argue that uh, we need to maximize safety considerations. So I'm in favor of testing. I'm in favor of kind of more rigorous uh, testing so as to get a sense of uh, uh, how and if epidemics are, are spreading in communities. At the same time, I feel that we have an opportunity to run randomized trials. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the site that is listing what universities do. And as you know, some of them change on a weekly basis, if not right. daily basis. Right. Uh, not two universities do the same thing uh, for a long enough time. Uh, there's zillions of different approaches that have been proposed. We have all these tens of thousands of brilliant scientists working in all of these places, and we have not come up with a randomized trial on how to do it. You know, it's, since we, we disagree so much on how to do it, I would argue we need to randomize. You know, this is what my, my mentor, the late Tom Chalmers, became famous for, randomize the first patient. I would say randomize the first student, randomize the first class, randomize the, the first discipline, the first college, you know, the first whatever. Um, try to get some data. We have a few such efforts that are being done in Norway, for example, and yeah. Denmark. We need far more of those. I think we will be surprised by some of the results. They will not be perfect. I'm sure that people will come up with uh, lots of reasons to say, oh, the study was not generalizable, was flawed, was sure. Uh, sure. X and Y. But we need to start somewhere. This virus is going to be with us. We cannot be in that complete chaos for years and years, not knowing what to do, uh, just getting pieces of models and pieces of opinions and pieces of uh, officials and officers and and presidents of colleges and universities trying to decide out of nowhere. <laughs> yes. So um, I guess there, there are some people who uh, they like to say that these sorts of randomized trials are impractical. And they say it so loudly and forcefully, they make sure for, they make damn sure it's not going to happen. So they keep, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. to some degree. They keep telling us we can't do these studies. And so they can't get done because they're obstructing it by saying that. Um, that's to me has been the great challenge of biomedicine. When you come and you say, not you, but anyone says, look, we can do a randomized trial here. And somebody stands there and says, oh, we can't do it because, you know, there's, we can't do it for this reason and that reason and this reason and that reason. And these are all reasons that, you know, you could, you don't have to follow. You could change those reasons. And then sure enough, they're like, proof it. And look, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. See, I kept telling you we couldn't do it. And now it didn't happen. I was like, because it's you, because you were standing there saying that. Um, you feel that frustration as well? I feel tremendously frustrated. I, I think that people say it's unethical to do it. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's horrible. Uh, you're thinking of guinea pigs. But the reality is that we have hundreds of different measures that are being applied. Yeah. Some of them are completely opposite to each other. Others uh, are, are just not even complementary. So if, if we do those, it means that people think that they're good ideas. And if they're good, all good ideas and they're so contradictory, we need to find out which are really the good ideas 
and which are the bad ideas. Uh, so let and me, let's talk I, for a second I, about the colleges. So, um, so a hypothetical randomized trial. Let's just you know talk about it. Maybe we do a cluster randomized study. We get, uh, let's say we're lucky, we get like 60, 70, 80, 100 colleges, 200 colleges, I'm starting to feel happy. Um, and we randomize them to maybe two different strategies. One strategy is um, we, we do a baseline screen uh, on entry, and then, um, and then I, I, I don't know, and then we, you know, you screen them every month or something like that. The other strategy is bi-weekly. And then the, the, the endpoints that we look at would be, I think that one of the wrong endpoints is just caseload, because, you know, you, you're just going to drive up a lot of cases. And and certainly you can't you shouldn't use caseload to halt things. I think it should be something like hospitalization or severe symptomatic infection, however you define it. There are some people who push back on me and they say that well those things lag. So by the time those things happen, it's already too late. And I want to say they lag to some degree, but not that much. And also if you and there are downsides to using cases because if you just use cases, um, you know you you could potentially be stop you know stopping the world for something that somebody's going to recover from anyway. Uh, so how would you kind of design it? Uh, talk us through, like, what, you know, what, would, what does one look like? I agree. Uh, you know, if you look at cases, probably there's 700 uh, million uh, infected people around the world. So the, the numbers are staggering and they were, they're going up. Uh, cases alone don't mean much. I, I would look at, uh, at more hard outcomes like hospitalizations, as you say, and, you know, more severe disease. I think the population needs to be defined to include not only the students, but also their close uh, relatives that live with them. Uh, and, you know, where they might go if they were to go back, for example, to go home. Uh, they need to include also the university staff and faculty uh, in the calculations. I think that we also need to look at other outcomes. We need to look at outcomes of, of uh, what happened in terms of the educational experience. Uh, we need to, to look at, at functional outcomes. Uh, we need to look at, uh, at mental health outcomes, at, at uh, uh, you know, what happened to these students' anxiety and depression levels. We have surveys that suggest that 60% of the population has anxiety or depression at the moment. And 25% of young people, 18 to 25 years old, they have suicidal ideation. So um, it's very likely that we will see no deaths in that population. But if, if we have deaths, there are likely to be suicides. One, one of my biases is that I'm, I'm sure that some people had in their close environment people who died of COVID, and I, I, I share their grief. But within my environment, I have two people who committed suicide, two young people who committed suicide. I had none who died of COVID-19. So this is a bias, you know, it's, it, and it's a very heavy bias that you cannot change because it's my, my personal experience. But it's something that I feel that many others uh, may find themselves in the same situation. So we need to look at multiple outcomes not just uh, measuring another surrogate. I mean, we have been misled from surrogates in the past. I think PCR documented cases are just another surrogate that could be a disaster if we just stick to it too long and too much. We fleshed out right in the last four minutes, um, you know, what would what might under ordinary circumstances make a, an elegant JAMA viewpoint, uh, the case for um, randomized studies. And, you know, we can cite the work in Norway and those sorts of things. If we submitted that, if you submitted that, if I submitted that, if anyone submitted that, uh, tomorrow, I, I believe it will be rejected quite promptly. <laughs> uh, not to ja not just to JAMA, but I believe to all the major medical journals. Um, let's talk about the third to topic because I think this is the you know, our time is running short. In terms of biases, you must disclose you're not on Twitter. 
No, I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't have any personal social media account. I, I have no Twitter account, no Facebook account, no Instagram account, no blogs. That, you don't uh, have a fake account I, you go and check up about yourself and what that. No, <laughs> you don't. I don't want to look. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I, I, I would say that uh, it took me many years in life to learn not to look. And it's something that, I mean, I think everyone, um, how can I put it? You have two choices in life, I think. You can try to be as anonymous as possible. And actually, I, there's a lot of virtues in that, actually. As you get older, you think there's a lot of beauty to being you know, as anonymous as possible. Or you can try to say some things that, you know, what you believe in whatever issue. And you always run the risk that the more you say it, the more ardent you say it, and the more passion you bring to it, that some people will identify you for saying that. And then there's always going to be a fraction of people who don't like what you say. It varies, of course, like IFR. It's a product of what you're saying and when you're saying it and to whom you're saying it. And it varies. And, and they're going to say things that are hurt your feelings. And we're all, I think, people who are sensitive to that. I don't think anyone is not. Um, but I think, I think of people like, you know, Hillary Clinton or, you know, some politician the things they must endure if they ever looked up their own name would be horrific. They could spend a lifetime just reading all the things people think about them. Um, and somehow they've managed to not do that. They don't succumb to those sorts of temptations. I think to some degree that I, I, I advise people to sort of resist the urge. Um, anyway, I say that as somebody who makes a podcast and things like that. Um, but coming back to your situation, um, you know, not all scientists, uh, you know, have gotten a red carpet throughout history. That's for sure. Um, in the early part of your career, I've read some things, you know, you were doing something at a time where not many people were doing it, which is you were doing meta research. It was critical often of fields. There are a lot of people in those fields who had a lot of power. You must have gotten some degree of criticism early on in your career. People told you to shut up, keep your head down. Um, <laughs> and, and you're a smart person. I mean, from a personal point of view, you know, I mean, you, 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 you have a career as a, as a scientist, um, but you could have had, I mean, arguably you could have a very powerful, you could be chairman of some big department by simply not, by tempering your criticism early in your career. Do you not, I mean, do you think that that's the case? So what made, you know, what did you deal with early in your career? Let's come to the, la the last part last. What did you deal with early in your career? And what made you choose to not just keep your head down and, and, and rise through the ranks, but rather to keep poking this bear? Well, I think that life is short and uh, we have an obligation to, to do our best to, to get as close to the truth as possible. And especially in medicine and in public health, it's also about saving lives. It, it's, it's not just a curiosity. So I, I, I think it, it would not be sincere if uh, I said that I will silence myself or, or keep low uh, profile or not talk or not say anything. Uh, because it, it will be attacking some powerful uh, players uh, or, or, or will be in an unpopular position. If I feel that uh, what I have to say may be important to save lives or to get us closer to the truth, I, I have no doubt that I make lots of mistakes. I'm, in my whole life, I'm struggling with just trying to make fewer mistakes. And whenever I see something that may be helpful to reduce the the dominance of mistakes in my life, uh, I, I, I feel it, it would be completely unfair not to do that, no matter what the cost is. So yes, the, I mean, this has a penalty. You need to be prepared for that penalty. Uh, it, it means that you will make lots of popular uh, and powerful people unhappy sometimes. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't have um, a fighting back machine uh, like uh, social media, like in my case, you, 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 
pretty much just receive the attacks with <laughs> with no option for counterattack. Uh, but this is okay as well because I, I think that whatever counterattack for me would be just trying to do science and reducing my own mistakes. You know, in some cases, some of these preprints that we were discussing, I ran four very extensive revisions before publishing them. And uh, I'm very grateful to all the constructive comments that were made that, you know, helped me to, to think through, through issues and, and try to improve them. And um, I, I've had several experiences that were very unpleasant. I, I think the current experience of, of being attacked uh, by some people uh, in very vicious ways and, and very acerbic, uh, vitriolic uh, ways was, uh, was very depressing, even though I, as I said, I don't have social media. Uh, I didn't just get hundreds and thousands of uh, congratulations emails. I got hate mail in my email uh, inbox. Uh, some of them were sent also to colleagues at Stanford, very widely disseminated uh, with very abusive uh, uh, language. Uh, my family was attacked uh, as well. Uh, social media circulated uh, a story that my mother, who's living alone in Athens, she's 86 years old, uh, she had died of COVID-19. And then her friends started calling at home to ask for the funeral. Uh, and she had a life-threatening hypertensive crisis. Uh, you know, these people almost killed my mother uh, and it was not COVID-19. You know, it, it, it was just pure smearing that, uh, that caused this trouble. So um, I, I think that we need to just take a step back and uh, acknowledge that we live in polarized times. We live in, in a situation where everything that you do, uh, there will be some zealots who take it as if uh, you're trying to support uh, some ideology or, or what they don't like. Uh, some of, of these classifications uh, that were proposed for me uh, were completely improbable. Uh, and I, I, I can only laugh with them. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I it, they're, they're so severe and, and, and so, so, um, so bad in, in smearing, but, 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 uh, no one who, who really spends more than a minute to try to understand what, uh, what they're saying can really take them seriously. Um, smearing, I think, is a tool of populism. I think it's a tool of mostly far right populism. I saw that used by people who claim that they're progressives, and I, I can't see how that uh, really can happen. Uh, you know, when BuzzFeed uh, circulated uh, these stories, uh, you know, I, I, I spent uh, hours with uh, the reporter. I, I thought that she was a good reporter, and I, I spent a couple of hours talking with her, and I spent even more time replying to questions, and I just saw that everything was distorted when it was published. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just very sad. It's, uh, it's very sad, but the only thing that you can do is to continue doing what you feel that you have an obligation as a scientist and as a physician, tell the truth or, or what you know about the truth. You may be wrong, but, but just say what you have found as accurately as possible and try to do the best to help other human beings. And, uh, no, don't don't feel bad about people who who attack you. I I try to say that uh, people are scared. People are, are in a crossroads. They they feel that their world is collapsing. 
uh, the way that we see these smearing attacks, not just for myself, but for many others happening, this means that people feel very uneasy. They feel scared. They feel anxious. They feel depressed. And, and they, act, they act out in ways that uh, they're not themselves. They're, it's not the, their best selves for sure. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. I guess if I were to sort of look at your career from a distance and, and you know, I even though um, we've worked together a long time ago, uh, you know, I don't know you very well, but I just have observed from a distance. I would say that, you know, prior to 2005, um, you know, here and there, there would be people who'd push back on you because you would write something about, you know, some small domain, some niche in science about sort of stru really structural problems in that niche. And anytime you do that, you're going to get you know, 10 people don't like you one day, 10 people don't like you the next day, and it's going to circulate. And people do forget, so with time it goes around. Um, I do think there is a professional penalty even to doing that, that in fact, and many people quickly see that and they take the different sort of career path of, um, I, I will just only generate hype and and that, and that, that is a, that's a, that's the best scientific career actually, to never, to just do your own thing and never say anything about anything else, even if it's the worst science you've ever read, that is in fact the best, surest path to to being a leader and 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 getting a big <laughs> paycheck in a big office. You didn't do that early in your career. I think that's something. I think it's a personality trait. Um, you know, it, 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 there's intelligence is one personality trait, and this sort of the doggedness to always kind of want to say what you think. Uh, to some degree, I, I have I believe I'm. Unfortunately, I'm struck with that same personality trait. Um, uh, so, so you did that to 2005, um, and then uh, until 2010, when you moved to Stanford, I think from 2010 to 2020, things changed a little bit because you were no longer this guy in Greece that could be dismissed so readily. You were somebody who had published a lot in this space. Um, for every person who didn't like what you said, there's probably nine people who did like what you said, and they were citing your articles. And, 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 and they were appreciating, I think, a little bit later that you were prescient on a number of these fronts, like reproducibility and like some of the structural problems in science. I think, and then I think one of the things that happened in this pandemic is, um, you know, you're, by, by not being on Twitter, it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, the blessing, of course, is that it is an incredible waste of time and I waste so much of my life on it. <laughs> um, the curse is that to some degree, uh, you you don't you didn't have the pulse of where people's anxiety and emotion and mental headspace was. I, I don't think you would have done anything differently. You know, I I don't think you would have said anything differently. Um, but sometimes perhaps we we say things extremely softly when you realize the person is uh, in a delicate space. So I don't want to say that you would have said. I think all of your opinions would have been the same, but you might have packaged it in bubble wrap, something like that. Um, and, and then the other thing I think is just by having a presence, I think it would have been uh, a deterrent to attacking you, the mere possibility that you could say something back. I think it's also, a, I mean, to some degree, it's a deterrent to, to people who want to attack. And then I think some of the other sort of factors that go into it are, um, I guess I'd say, you know, you, you have enjoyed some success in the sense that early in your career, I don't think people were citing your work very heavily, but in the last few years, it's been very heavily cited. You're probably one of the most cited people, at least top five or top 10 in, in medicine, which is really some, saying something. And I think when you are, anytime you get that kind of popularity, there's always a faction of people who are going to resent you for having it. Um, you know, who is, who is this person to think their work should be cited so much? Of course, you don't think, you know, it's not, you can't control it. It's out of your control. You've just done it. Um, and I think that reared its ugly head in a few ways because some of the uh, – so I don't want to talk about all of the criticism that happened. I, I can't address that. I just want to focus on the academy where I do think that we have to abide by something different than what the, the masses choose to say. 
the masses may smear you and they may smear somebody on the other side of the issue. Um, but those of us who are in the academy, I think there are a few things that should guide our actions. One, um, it's okay to get angry at someone when they say something that's known to be wrong. But when uncertainty, uncertainty intervals as wide as the earth and the moon, I think we have to be very tolerant that different people with different sort of biases will view the world differently. And this calculation I talk about, years of life lost or gained in all these scenarios, we have to allow for the fact that different people will have different worldviews. That's okay. We should hear them out. We should interrogate them. We should say, what tests will allow you to know you're right and I'm wrong? What randomized trials could we construct? That's the process of science. I think in your case, it didn't happen. Um, and I was most disappointed by the other academics. I mean, I, I was joking that, uh, you know, of course, you you have a white suit and you wear it from time to time. That was a mistake, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Because people didn't like people didn't like that white suit. They said, "Look at this guy in his white fucking suit." They said, "That's I mean, literally the kinds of things they said." His white fucking suit. Look at him. I mean, I found that to be like, okay, I'm not sure that's relevant to IFR. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert on IFR, but I don't think that's relevant. Uh, you know, I, you said that they told you you should shave your mustache. Um, you know, it got to that level, and then I think a lot of people came out of the woodwork to say, you know, John has done. A couple of things I disagree with on COVID, and by the way, every paper he's ever done is garbage. <laughs> That's what I—that was one of my favorites. Uh, but you know, I think—I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be on in your shoes. I—I I think, I mean, what I—I I mean, to be, here's how I would view it if I were you. I would say, what a th what a thankless, thankless thing. I mean, you're like, and I, you at, at this point in your career, you didn't need to do anything to tell people what you thought. You're trying to do. I think you know, you probably view it as you're trying to do a public service because you believe what you believe. They may not believe the same thing, but, you know, you believe what you believe and you believe lives are being lost. Um, so you're trying to do a public service and the, the, the thanks you're getting is a is a big pile of crap on your doorstep. Um, so I think I would th I would view it in sort of a very negative light. Um, and, and I guess I would say that I, I think it is silencing. That was a word that I used early on and maybe not silencing you because you've been around for a while. You can take a lot. Um, it amazes me, but you can. Um it silences a lot of those who might say, John is right. People who are first-year professors, fellows, trainees, they're scared to say John is right, or John has a point, or maybe we're not thinking as much as downsides. Maybe maybe I don't agree with John, but maybe the truth is in that direction a little bit. They're very scared to say it. And where do I think that played a role? Uh, if I were to articulate the central, I mean, there's so many policy problems right now, but if I were to have to pick one that I want to really have an honest conversation about, it is the public schools for kids less than 16. I mean, I, I, I had Jay Bhattacharya on and he thinks, you know, colleges too, but I think college kids, they'll be okay. It's the, it's the poor kids less than 16 who we are, I think we're going to do some serious damage to. And that damage will pay, it'll hurt us in ways that we don't see. It'll hurt us both because they won't have the same education, there'll be more dropouts, maybe teen pregnancies, maybe suicides, maybe violence, those sorts of things. But 30 years from now, when we try to elect politicians, we're going to be missing out on a, a group of people um, who don't have the education it requires to be a civil, a participant in a civil society. Anyway, coming back to, to your issue, I guess I, I think that I hope some of the people who um, were very harsh towards you online, I hope they have some regret now that they, that we, things have cooled off a little bit. Um, it, it's not helpful. Uh, and I think I just don't understand why. Um, and so I guess I like people like Stan Vermin because as much as, you know, he disagrees with you, 
which there are some real disagreements, he's very collegial about wanting to engage and being willing to talk. Um, how, how, how do you view the people who disagree with you, who engage with you versus those who choose not to engage? I mean, how do you think about that? I, I clearly prefer uh, people who are willing to engage, and uh, I'm grateful to people who can prove that I'm wrong. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, the group of my greatest benefactors, people showing me that I'm wrong or I can do something in, in a better way. Not engaging is, uh, is really detrimental to science. I think that uh, it, uh, it creates uh, very dogmatic views of uh, people who are stuck in their original positions and are not willing to change them. I, I think this is not how science uh, should work. As, as you mentioned, it's very unfortunate that um, any silencing effort is not going to affect the person being silenced. You know, it's very unlikely that, that uh, no matter what uh, uh, some people might say, I will silence myself. I've, I've been used to just uh, uh, talking and, uh, and not uh, really being afraid of this, but many young people, young scientists, or even more senior scientists may be afraid to really appear in a smearing and toxic environment. And, and then you're just losing scientific values. You're losing um, scientific insights that could have been contributed to important debates and to research and to iterations of trying to get some better answers to these very crucial problems that we're facing. I, I think that um, I, I remain open to discuss uh, with, uh, with people, even with those who have been very aggressive in their words uh, and uh, uh, tweets <laughs> uh, against me. I, I realize that um, uh, we all have good days and bad days and uh, Twitter is not necessarily the place where people show their best selves. It, it's, it has a, a disinhibiting uh, component uh, sometimes that uh, can, can make even very serious people look like fools. Uh, and and that's, that's what I'm afraid of, of myself that, you know, I, I can make myself a fool very easily, even with scientific writings that I look again and again multiple times. And if I were to start tweeting away, I would probably say lots of things that I would uh, regret afterwards. I, I think we need to be calm. We need to uh, just be tolerant. Uh, it's it's important to to all do our best, and uh, there's no one to be thrown out and no one to, to win any prize here. It's, uh, it's about saving lives. And uh, I, 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 I'm not going to engage in any blame game. I'm not blaming anyone. A everyone who attacked me, thank you very much. Uh, you know, these $5,000 from that uh, billionaire, I don't know where they went. Uh, <laughs> supposedly they were to go to 200 people who worked in the study. Uh, if you ever find that share of mine for $25, probably I can buy you a pepperoni pizza and a <laughs> glass of beer. <laughs> so you're saying, I say, yeah, you're, you, you do not feel like that, um, uh, that the billionaire donating some modest amount of money to Santa Clara, ha it didn't reach your desk is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've done all my work on COVID-19 without getting a single dollar. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I think that uh, many people really contributed their best, both to Santa Clara study and to to many other projects, not just in my team. You know, I, I think that, that thousands and thousands of scientists around the world have done their best to respond to, to the pandemic. And I, I think that maybe just some, some respect for all that time and effort that they devoted. Uh, 
I would argue respect is needed for everyone else other than me. Uh, I, that's what I'm arguing for here. <laughs> I mean, I guess the one the one story that I thought was, you know, and I, I wrote about it on some something that listserv that people were asking me, um, you know, the White House meeting. Um, and I guess the reason it troubles me is, um, you know, so this was the claim that um, you don't have to get too deep into it uh, because I, I, I guess this is my view of it. This was the idea that, um, you know, very early in the pandemic, um, you uh, sought to assemble a group of people to communicate ideas about what is known, what is unknown to the White House, um, hopefully to kind of help guide data collection efforts, possibly to help shape policy responses. And I guess that was under a lot of criticism. And some of the things I thought were notable in the article was I think they put a list of people who you sought to assemble. Um, some of the people on that list to me were people who I knew to be strongly supportive of lockdowns strongly supportive of policy decisions that you may have had some doubts about, but did support for limited periods of time. So I guess I, I, I found it to be an interesting article because one of the things it conceded was that you were assembling a group of experts, many of whom disagree with you, which I thought is really not a sort of tactical strategy of a master, <laughs> of a master lobbyist. It's not a tactical strategy that I'm aware of in, on K Street um, in D.C. The next thing that struck me is is sort of the imbalance, which is that, you know, there were many people at that time who felt maybe in support of even more draconian measures we didn't reach. They were comfortable lobbying the elected officials with their point of view. And so I felt like, you know, even if you don't agree with him, isn't it his prerogative to lobby for, you know, some of us like a tax on soda pop. Some of us don't like a tax on soda pop. Some of us like, um, you know, we, there are all these things politicians have to decide. And, you know, I, I don't begrudge someone for arguing the other side. I mean, I, I don't like a lot of pharma drug approvals, but I know they're going to lobby, uh, you know, but, I you know, I, so I guess I don't know. I mean, I guess I found it to be a strange thing that you were to be faulted for this. Um, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I, I felt that it was really a very weird story uh, because, as you say, these uh, people who I tried to, to put together, uh, some of them uh, completely disagreed with me. <laughs> so, so clearly that could not have been a, a lobbying uh, effort uh, trying to achieve, uh, I don't know what might be the goal of, uh, of achieving uh, I tried to get people who I believed were the best scientists. And you see that among them, there's a, a Nobel laureate. Uh, there's uh, uh, the Dean of Public uh, Health at Yale. There's the Associate Dean of Research at Berkeley, you know, also leading the ID department and epidemiology uh, division. Uh, there's one of the best infectious disease person at, uh, at UCLA, the most cited political scientist of the century, also an infectious disease expert at the University of California, San, uh, San Diego, uh, the former director of uh, disease prevention at Yale, a very experienced CDC senior uh, person in respiratory viruses, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a, a great uh, physician and uh, economist. Uh, so they, they were covering very broad uh, expertise. Uh, I think that they were among the, the best scientists in the world. I communicated with all of them, as I did with many others. It's not that we knew exactly what had to be done. Uh, and in terms of lockdown, we even had uh, very different perspectives about what might be the optimal approach. I think we all wanted data. You know, we, we wanted to get data as quickly as possible and as reliably and as accurately as possible. Yes. And uh, we, we just wanted to help. Uh, so uh, eventually we couldn't reach the White House. We couldn't reach the task force. 
uh, we we tried in different ways to talk. I was you know talking with uh, uh, people around the environment of uh, Tony Fauci. I I have great respect for Tony. He was my director when I was at uh, yeah. NIAID uh, no, I worked in the mid 1990s. He's he's a you know tremendous person, uh, really brilliant. You know, eventually that didn't happen. You know, we, <laughs> once again we were silenced, as you say, <laughs> and 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 not only we were silenced, but while everybody else was having their day and really lobbying yes, and really That's having yeah. uh, you know full access to the White House and to officials and and everyone, uh, <laughs> we were the ones to be smeared. <laughs> so so it's uh, I, I I can only laugh. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to to think in any other terms about this. Uh, if communicating with the best scientists in the world and trying to save lives and uh, and avoid destroying the country is a sin i have committed it yes <laughs> yeah i think i think it was it's an it's a strange double standard i guess in the sense that you know the folks on the other side of the issue you don't doubt their sincerity that their goal is to minimize death, right? I mean, you, you, you. I mean, f so there are still some folks I've seen calling for relockdown. Those things. I don't. I don't think. I don't think I've ever doubted their sincerity, or you've doubted their sincerity that they they believe that that will save more lives. They believe that. I mean, we don't doubt that sincerity, but they doubt your sincerity. I think that's a strange double standard that they they don't say that you know you could potentially have a different point of view, but that there must be some other motive that drives you because you should know better that you're wrong. But it, that's a very, it's a very interesting thing. You know, if the only two types of people there are in the world are those who agree with us and those who are sinners, we view the world in a very strange light. Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really very weird. And it, it just uh, shows how polarized the current environment is and uh, how people try to fit everything to just ideological frameworks that have nothing to do with reality. Uh, for good or bad, there's still independent science. And I hope that independent science still remains alive. Well, I think it's dying. We, we really it's, need it's it. We death. really need it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really very much worried about uh, the ability of healthy skepticism, independent scientific thinking, uh, thinking out of the box, having high-risk ideas, uh, having no conflicts. Is, is there any room for that? Uh, phenotype or or is it uh, a dinosaur if it is a dinosaur please call me a dinosaur but i will die as a dinosaur <laughs> well you know i think you know jeff flyer and i wrote that op-ed and one of the things we said that the that something more deadly and more dangerous than covid19 is the risk that science and politics become indistinguishable and i got a lot of crap about i said oh that's not more it's covid it killed my grandmother you bastard and i was like okay well i mean yeah covid's bad too but this is also bad um but um you know um there's some truth to that, that if science becomes indistinguishable from politics, all is lost. I mean, there's no independent inquiry. Um, I, I wonder if you and 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 um, uh, your your Nobel laureate that you invited up for, he might be the only one less popular than you these, <laughs> these oh, days. Poor um, Michael Levitt. Poor Michael Levitt. Uh, he's, I guess, he's so amazing. And he has, you know, suffered so much from all these attacks. And he's just amazing. I guess one thing I might want to address is... Um, you know, when all is said and done, nobody wants to compare this to any flu. But the flu season of 1957, 1958 is an interesting season. When all is said and done, I was reading a preprint by someone else where they said there may be some similarities. Uh, I, of course, would never compare this to anything. <laughs> That's such a deadly thing. But okay, so they're comparing it to the 57, 58 flu. 
I guess I want to ask about the people who lived in that flu season. I mean, when you read history books, it's not even mentioned in some books. It's omitted from some books. Um, the people who lived in that time were different people than who we are in 2020. They were people who suffered, grew up in the Great Depression. Uh, they had been to war, maybe twice. Um, great war, great conflict. Um, they were different people. They were the kinds of people that let their kids go play for hours at young ages. They don't know where they are or what they do. We're different people, particularly in the United States, maybe different than Europe even. You have sort of a European sensibility. And I know many people from Sweden and in Europe um, who do view it differently than I think people in the States. Um, to what degree do you think some of our response is a product of who we are, a society that is strongly focused on immediacy of safety, of, of these short-term measurable things, of a society that is addicted to, um, I think, the, the, the feedback of the counter of the COVID going up and up and up, a society that is, you know, in this media bubble and, and a society that hates this president. And so everything that he does that he fucks up is is another indictment of him, which is good for a lot of us, you know, who I mean, I hate him, too. That's the thing. I mean, I hate him, too. I mean, I can't. Um, yeah. So, yeah. How do you view this as, you know, you know, talk IFR is a product of the hospital system in this response to pandemic is a product of who we are as a people, as well as this lethality of the virus. It's not just one or the other. Who we always change. No, any comparison of uh, COVID-19 against uh, any sort of influenza is an invitation to get death threats. Uh, <laughs> so we are we are entering into precarious territory. But uh, but you're right. Um, I I think I'm I'm very puzzled that if you try to find information about how many people died in 1957 and the following year 1957 58, uh, you know you read. Uh, somewhere between one to four million people in 1957, you know, and then, then the next year. And uh, I just, please do let me know if, if there's some accurate accounting of deaths, because we're talking about an uncertainty of several million deaths. And it seems no one was counting. It was like an approximation, you know, roughly two million, three million, four million. And now we are counting not just deaths, we're counting every PCR case every day. Uh, you know, two more PCR cases in this location. Uh, there's something very different here. There's something very different. Of course, every single person who gets sick, I don't want that person to get sick. Of course, every person who dies, I would do everything to not have that person die. I'm a physician. That's that's my priority. But but the 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 change in mentality, the change in in over accuracy in perhaps some sort of peculiar overdiagnosis, some sort of, of, of over-medicalization of our society, of, of over-scared, of overdoing, uh, is becoming dangerous. I, I think it's it's becoming a burden upon our our ability to live. I, I'm I'm the one who loves numbers. As I told you, I was I was coming up with love scales with two decimal points when I was uh, a little kid. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm the last person who will say that numbers uh, are not good, but here they start becoming a danger to humanity because there, there are numbers that are inaccurate, they're biased, and we're, we're just investing too much on them. We, we've lost the sense of what really matters. And I think that we need to think, just think about what matters eventually. 
And I guess the last question I'll ask you, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I've taken so much of your time, um, is, is maybe some of your philosophical thoughts about medicine. Here's something that I've been mulling over, and I'm curious to know what you think. Um, medicine has been extraordinary, I think. In addition to the things that are untold, which is moving people out of poverty and cleaning up sanitation and public health and drinking water and sewage, which have really dramatically transformed life expectancy, we in medicine have some remarkable successes. Some of our interventions, some of our surgeries, some of our pills, some of our uh, procedures are indisputably of benefit. They are the right pill at the right time, transforms outcomes. When somebody comes in with an ST elevation myocardial infarction, if you if you stent open that artery, I mean, there must be double digit percentage points, you know, in, in, in three day mortality benefit. I mean, just massive benefits. It's because we have a few things that are magic or appear as magic that we get away with selling the suitcase full of garbage. That for all the flash and bang in medicine, this few things that are really good effect size, I'm not even talking about very large effect size, just really, you know, decent effect size, maybe odds ratio three effect size, not five like your paper. Um, but, you know, decent effect size interventions, we've got thousands of them. We add a couple hundred thousand interventions that have effect sizes that are like basically zilch or negative. And we get away with those met things because we have a few things that do work. And so people naturally suspend the disbelief for the magic tricks that don't connect with the audience, the things that don't do what we think. And that has allowed us to suck up more GDP. We're sucking fifth of GDP. You know, I think Rome toppled when half the days of Rome were, were, uh, were, were Colosseum events. I think this nation will topple when 50% of GDP is healthcare. I mean, is there a ceiling to, I mean, a society that exists only to fund its own healthcare is, you know, what we're rapidly becoming. I guess I wonder what your philosophy of medicine, like where did we, and, and then every year for, you know, you come along, you've dispelled some myths. I hope I've dispelled some myths and lots of people have dispelled a few myths, but every myth I dispel, there's 20 myths that rise in its place. And a whole generation of doctors is trained to, to add more, you know, junk into the world because that's what drives careers. So I feel like, um, you know, we can't sweep up the floor faster than it can be messed up. So I guess, I don't know, on the, in the long arc of human, on the long arc of medicine, are you optimistic that, COVID someday will be, it will be at least be something we don't talk about every day. Thank God. I pray for that day. Um, but will we have a medicine that is capable of, of, of balancing itself, of, of taking what's good and throwing what's bad, of realizing innovation is slow and infrequent, that science is difficult? Will we have that or will we drift the other way of just burdening our society till we, our back breaks carrying our own pills? I, I don't know, to be honest, but uh, it is a very serious problem and it's a major threat. I think that medicine and the medicalization of society is becoming a major threat to humanity. You know, medicine is becoming uh, like a public enemy of health at the moment. And uh, we need to take sides. You know, we need to, to take sides. Are we with medicine or are we with health? Are we with uh, with drugs and interventions? And now I need to add public health measures <laughs> to the list. Or are we with humans? Are we with with human lives and with with quality of life? Uh, it's unfortunate that that it's coming to this. Uh, but medicine is becoming an enemy of health, and that fifty percent tipping point, the inflection point that you mentioned, is probably not very far. If you think that, uh, for example, we had a thirty. 3% drop in, in GDP in the U.S., uh, you add the 20% <laughs> uh, 
of GDP that goes to medicine, here's your 50% hmm. right now in, in, in some sort of calculation. I, I don't think that we can sustain that. I, I, I think that we need to think of priorities. We need to think of what we are achieving with all these measures. We have lots of extremely effective medical interventions, and this is wonderful. Chapeau bas. Medicine is saving lots of lives. We have lots of ineffective interventions. And when it comes to COVID-19 and the public health response, I am afraid that many of the ineffective interventions are not just applied to one patient at a time, which is still detrimental, but they're applied to the whole world at large. So we're not talking about a single patient being mismanaged. We're talking about 7.7 billion people being mismanaged and suffering. Um, I'm, I'm really worried. And I, I don't know if we will be able to survive that crisis. I hope we do. I, I think that I trust in, in science. I trust in the ability to correct our errors. I, I hope I will correct my own errors as a start. Um, but it is, it is a major threat. It is clearly a major threat. So I guess some have said your views on COVID-19 are a departure from your prior body of work. But I think what you've tried to outline in this discussion is that it's an extension of the prior body of work because one of the uniting themes of your work has been that many of us who have believed in many periods of time that the, the drastic and strong actions um, improve the human condition have often walked ourselves into blunders where we have worsened the human condition, even facing very real threats from cancer to heart disease to COVID-19. You can fool yourself into thinking you're benefiting people when you're hurting them. And I guess you very early on had an intuition, to some degree it was an intuition because the data was very nascent, that that's a risk we could run. It's an intuition that wasn't shared on social media websites, which have, I think to some degree that's been, you know, that social media websites have, have they've taken over the media narrative because the reporters are, you know, um, Bari Weiss, who quit um, the New York Times, she said, the ultimate editor of the New York Times is Twitter. Uh, and to some degree, that's true because the reporters are following the, the social media dialogues. So you're disconnected from that. You had a very fundamentally different intuition about the aggregate risk benefits of this massive sort of calculation. Um, that intuition is probably in line with your prior body of work, that human beings can muck things up worse when they do something than not doing something. Is that a fair summary of, of how you how you view this? I, I think that I'm still the same person with the same biases and uh, the, the same proclivity to, to make the same types of mistakes. Uh, and uh, this has continued in the COVID-19 era. I, I think one tweet that was conveyed to me was that uh, maybe John has a brain tumor. <laughs> 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 Not to my knowledge. I haven't had an MRI. I don't believe in screening uh, after all. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I, I think that uh, uh, basically what I, I try to do is not new. Uh, it, it goes back to the, you know, the tradition of uh, Hippocrates and I, I hate that uh, this is being translated as uh, uh, primum non notere. I prefer the original Greek version uh, of Elaine Imi Vlaptin. You know, uh, do some good, or if you cannot do any good, at least don't do any harm. So we should be careful here, because I think we're doing lots of harm. John Yonidis, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure talking with you on this, on this topic. Thank you, Vinay. Pleasure was all mine.
I'm back in plenary session joined via Zoom by Dr. Mary Elizabeth Percival. Dr. Percival is an assistant professor of medicine at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance in Seattle at the University of Washington. And she is the author of a new paper, which is simply fascinating. Survival of patients with newly diagnosed high-grade myeloid neoplasms who do not meet standard trial eligibility. This came out in Hematologica 2020. Dr. Percival, it's a pleasure to meet you on Zoom. Yes, happy to be here. So um, just to give listeners a little bit of background about you, you are a leukemia doctor. Um, you did your training a, mostly in the Bay Area, where I now reside, at uh, the University of California, San Francisco for your residency um, and your fellowship at Stanford. Um, and uh, are you also a transplanter or are you more of a, um, a chemotherapist? I would guess, I guess I would say I'm more of a chemotherapist. Um, I'm not sure I've ever described myself that way before. Um, but transplant and uh, leukemia are kind of different beasts. And so um, I take care of patients before their transplant and then in a few months after their transplant if they come back to see me again. I see. And do you focus um, solely on AML or do you get a little bit of MDS as well? And do you take care of any of the other acute leukemias like ALL? I focus primarily on AML. Okay. Um, I do take care of patients with uh, MDS also, primarily high-grade MDS, the patients who have kind of that 10 to 19% blasts who often behave in a yeah. similar way of to course, AML, yeah. and so we often treat them in a similar fashion. Um, I only take care of ALL uh, when I cover my colleague uh -huh. in the appointing office to me, uh, but and or when I'm on the inpatient leukemia service at the hospital. But it is not a specialty of mine. And what about promyelocytic leukemia APL? Yes, definitely patients with APL are part of my practice too. Okay, excellent. So, um, you know, you did this paper. It came out in Hematologica. Uh, you're the first author of the study. Um, the last author was a guest of Plenary Session as well, Eli Esty, um, who, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of and has uh, uh, long had a very provocative view on many topics, which, you know, we, we, we need more of that. Um, but uh, this is a really interesting paper, and I and I, I really am grateful that you came on the podcast to walk listeners through this. Um so I wonder if you might you might frame sort of the broad question, what led you to do this work? What got you interested in asking about trial eligible and trial ineligible patients? Yeah, so I think that this is a really important issue for um, people who practice in kind of all areas of medicine, not just in cancer and um, not just in the, the narrow world of leukemia that I inhabit. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have a lot of, of drugs that get approved, and um, the question always is, who are they really right for? And so I think that kind of big overarching question is something that comes up a lot in day-to-day -day clinical practice as well as in the larger health policy field. And so um, a few years ago, there was um, a series of papers that were published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that really tried to say, you know, are we framing eligibility for trials correctly? And ASCO came out and said, no, we probably aren't. I think it was actually something called Friends of ASCO. Mm -hmm. um, and they came out and they said, no, we probably aren't. We probably should be more inclusive and representative um, so that we actually really understand what the drugs are doing in the populations that we are caring for, but also making sure that we're having that really appropriate balance between safety and um, and efficacy that's so important um, to always be considering when we're taking care of patients. Um, so as part of that series of articles, there was an analysis of solid tumor patients that came out of Kaiser Permanente in Northern California 
where they estimated that something like 60% um, of patients with newly diagnosed solid tumors like colon cancer, breast cancer, urinary tract cancers, that um, about 60% uh, of patients that were seen in Kaiser would not be eligible for clinical trials. And so we said, where's the leukemia? Yeah. And so we wanted to kind of take a look at our leukemia patients, um, since we see a lot of them here, um, and, and really say kind of in a consecutive cohort of patients over a couple of years, how many of them um, would or wouldn't have met standard trial eligibility. And then to take that a step further and say, did their outcomes matter based on whether they did or didn't meet that standard trial eligibility? I see. Prior to doing this study, did you ever have the clinical experience of um, of, of reading a paper and it says, you know, for, uh, say, for instance, um, you know, relapsed AML, we gave, you know, such and such regimen, we had a 40% CR rate, uh, you know, we had a certain median survival, nine months, 11 months, and then, you know, you were giving it in the clinic, and you were like, what are they talking about? Uh, this is, it's not as well tolerated as they say, the survival's not as good, the CR rate is lower, I have to dose reduce a lot more. Did you ever have that sort of clinical experience um, prior to doing this work? Were you speaking of vitamin V venetoclax, um, which gets so <laughs> oh, much press, yes. um, but it's actually, you know, difficult to tolerate and difficult to administer. And um, I think that, um, yes, that has 100% certainly happened to me, um, and nothing against venetoclax personally, right. um, just kind of an easy target because, um, you know, people have so, so quickly adopted it into the canon of treatment um, without really, I think, acknowledging some of the limitations of administration. Um, and, you know, I think it comes up a lot when patients ask, like, Doc, how long am I going to live? And, you know, we have to try to make an estimate about that. But there's a big difference between how long an individual is going to live compared to what the median is for some study. And while we can try to predict which side of the median the patients will fall on. It's really challenging, especially when um, there's upfront toxicity related to the disease and the treatment of disease frequently, especially during like an injection cycle. Yeah. And is your experience with the venetoclax that their counts go to uh, really, really low and they're very difficult to support? Yeah, you're nodding. Yeah, they, they just, I think that, you know, there was all this focus on tumor lysis and right. how that was going to be this big thing. That doesn't, in my personal experience, seem to be nearly as big of a deal as the myelosuppression, which yeah. can be pretty profound. Profound, patients. and it can yeah. be just a killer and so hard to continue them on both. Yeah. Um, so, so with that backdrop, so you had had these experiences, um, you had also sort of been aware of prior studies in the solid tumors, and you thought, um, you know, it would be super interesting to look in leukemia, which I think is, you know, such an interesting disease, of course, um, and, and you set out to um, just consecutively go through um, the, the, the data set at the University of Washington, Fred Hutch, um, picking out over 400 consecutive patients and asking what percent are going to be trial eligible and ineligible. Um, and how did, you, how did you sort of come up with the criteria that you were going to use to define quote unquote eligibility? Yes. Well, I, I am a clinical trialist, so I um, run clinical trials. I've written a bunch of protocols for investigator-initiated trials that um, I've done, too. And so there are certain things that are pretty standard in terms of, I guess it would be more appropriate to say the ineligibility side mm, of things. Right. Um, one thing that my mentor and uh, your your uh, previous guest, Eli Esty, has discussed before is why do we have eligibility and ineligibility, why can't we just have one set of them yes. 
says like all of the things and has negatives where necessary. But regardless, um, you know, it's uh, they're pretty standard. And so typically, um, you know, the diagnosis is important. Um, and so we usually include patients that um, have a certain diagnosis. So while I take care of ACL patients, they are basically never included in any of the trials for AML, which sure. is always appropriate. Sure. Um, but then the other things that um, we we used were um, based on performance status. So most clinical trials will include patients with an ECOG performance status of zero to two, but typically you know, there are a lot of AML patients that present in the hospital and so as their first diagnosis and a lot of times if you're really being strict about the performance um, criteria, they should really be an ECOG of three because yeah, they're certainly spending greater than 50% of in their bed. time in bed yeah. when they're in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and then we also looked at um, what their GFR was. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that they had adequate renal function. Um, and then we also included some liver function um, uh, criteria. So saying that the ALT had to be less than twice the upper limit of normal, which is pretty standard. Sometimes it's two and a half times, sometimes three times. Um, making sure their bilirubin was less than one and a half, which I think is something that comes up of all of these things that may actually be the one that's the most important for actual chemotherapy interactions sure, and dose reductions sure, of course. and stuff. It actually speaks to the, the liver's ability to process yeah, and metabolize, exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of clinical trials for AML um, actually, and, and transplant trials too, for that matter, exclude patients who've had a previous solid tumor that's been diagnosed within sometimes two years, sometimes five years. Um, we picked two years for another solid tumor, excluding kind of other heme malignancies because so many patients with AML have had a prior MDS or MPN. Um, and then we also looked at cardiac function, because I think that's important sure, too. Sure. Yeah. Um, so many patients, not all, have gotten an echo or a MUGA, and, and um, whether they were getting amphocyclin-based chemotherapy or not, and that's sort of um, a related topic of interest for our group is how many of those patients actually needed um, that study done before chemotherapy, because probably um, the risk of having CHF that's undiagnosed in patients who are younger in particular is very low. Um, but anyway, we also looked um, through the medical record to see if they had any mention of a history of CHF or MI. I um, see. And, and so, the, I mean, these are just really sort of standard classic metrics yeah. that are probably across every single study. Now, I'm wondering if you might just take for a minute, just a little bit of a tangent, tell us a little bit about, you know, do you ever have that patient that, you know, is hospitalized and you're thinking, boy, they might be a good candidate for, you know, such and such trial, but their AST is just out of the ballpark. And then you think about ways you might buff them up a little bit to get them trial eligible. Let's give them a little bit of fluids, give them a couple, give them a day, maybe put them on some hydrea um, and then and then see how they do. And then, then we can reconsider the trial. Um, you're nodding. Do you have that kind of, what do we call that? That kind of like um, the little give and take, the little bit of play it's around. Just a little tune-up. Just a little tune-up, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think that certainly comes up a lot. And um, there was a paper that um, was published, I think, uh, this month in Blood um, that had been an abstract at ASH that was basically um, talking about time to treatment initiation yes, in I AML familiar. patients. Yeah. So that, that comes up like a fair bit. It's, there have been a couple of papers over the past decade or so, but this was a big study from uh, Germany. Yeah. I think Christoph uh, Rollins was the first author. Anyway. And, but the question is, like, how long can we safely wait? Because I think that, you know, when people hear AML and they see acute and they remember 
the case of somebody who had a white count of 300,000 and, you know, really had a very rocky initial course, they think that all AML is like that. And yeah. while, don't get me wrong, I definitely think it yeah, is it's serious. emergent. Yeah. In yeah. many cases, it's not always treatment, treatment emergent. Yes. And so I do think that it probably is safe a lot of times to wait a little bit, whether that's tuning up, whether that's waiting for results of some molecular and cytogenetic studies that may, you know, determine change the treatment trajectory that you had been planning for a patient. But also, I think in terms of trial eligibility, you know, and I think that that massaging or buffing or tuning or whatever yeah. we're calling it, um, you know, I, I think ultimately, when you believe in clinical trials, like I do, and you think that the standard treatments are not as great as they could be, right. you think that, you know, the idea of trying to, to get somebody on a trial, not committing any sort of, you know, eligibility fraud or that kind of no, thing, but, but um, yeah. trying to make sure that they have the opportunity to participate in something and benefit from something is important. Yeah. Um, within the rules of the game, uh, trying to get them to the best possible uh, scenario, which may be a trial for them. Um, what about, um, but, you know, on the other hand, it, you do certainly have those patients who come in with rip-roaring, like, a white count 200K that you're like, I just can't wait that long. We got to right. start induction. You agree? Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, with that background, um, uh, you, you took this standard criteria and you just took consecutive patients. So these were just people that walked in the door that got treated um, at, uh, at uh, the University of Washington. Uh, so walked in the door and got treated. Um, uh, and, and you just applied the filter. So you went through every chart and kind of did it by hand? Um, yes. <laughs> Yes and no. We do have an AML database, so it wasn't totally um, by hand, but there were, so the consecutive patients were sort of already identified um, in our database, Um, but there were some things that we don't kind of regularly collect on patients, such as the the cardiac function, for example, that's not something that's routinely part of the database right now. Um, So looking at things like that and then kind of putting it all together um, to make a nice spreadsheet for our great statistician, Megan Opus, was, uh, was, was definitely part of the, the project, yeah. Now, how would you have handled it if there was a patient who didn't have an echo or mugga? Um, so there were missing values. Um, most patients did. Um, it's, it's really interesting because we, we had a relatively broad uh, criteria, which that it needed to be within three months oh, okay. of initiation yeah. of chemotherapy. Sure. And so a lot of people had had some assessment of cardiac function, and I can't remember the exact number of missing, but it was probably about 50 patients. It wasn't a huge wasn't number a lot. out of the 450 or so that we included. And then how do you handle endpoint adjudication? Say, for instance, somebody gets their like initial treatment at Fred Hutch, but then they go somewhere else locally to get, you know, how do you know if they're alive? You have somebody call their, call them, check on them? or. Um, so yes and no. Um, I think that, that long-term endpoints are a really challenging um, thing for us to follow. Um, and any time that we have a really decentralized health system the way we do in the U.S., yes. uh, Eli and I have been talking about a project that we are interested in and how much easier it would be to do in some place like one of the Scandinavian countries where they have... Yes really, really robust long-term outcome and follow-up data on every patient, whether they have AML or not. So anyway, all that um, being said, um, we do have um, uh, people who enter data into the database, and sometimes they do things like look at online obituaries to try to figure out um, 
where things are. You know, we used to have Social Security um, data that was available, but that's a lot more challenging now. So um, I'd say that the, the data for kind of one month and life yes. are pretty, um, pretty well established yes. in our database. Um, but some of those intermediate outcomes like who's, who's has relapsed free survival yes. at one year, if they weren't yes. treated on a clinical trial, that's a lot more challenging. Of course. I see. Yeah. Right. And I, I would agree. That would be very tricky. Yeah. So maybe we'll, we'll jump to the results a little bit. I thought it was interesting because you know, a fair, fair number of people are, you know, even though you're at sort of a quaternary referral center, even though they're getting treated there, fair number of people would be trial ineligible. And I think I thought it was interesting how you tease apart which of the criteria weed people out. So I wonder you take us through that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that, you know, we, we laid everything out in table one, as people typically do in this kind of thing, and, and use that also as a univariate analysis to try to figure out what was kind of the most important in terms of making people ineligible. So as we look at the list of, of eligibility criteria that we had discussed, it's not a huge number of people that meet any of those to become ineligible. Yes. So for example, for the performance status three to four, there were only 19 patients out of the cohort, which was 5% that were weeded out um, from, from being considered quote unquote eligible because of that. Um, and so for example, um, for the, the patients who um, were had uh, ALT abnormalities, that was again, only 5% of the, the population. And yes. same with elevated bilirubin. It was only 2% of patients, for example, that had a low ejection fraction of less than 50%. Yes. So I think what that points to is that if you're going through with a patient and having a longer and longer list of eligibility or ineligibility criteria, you're going to be able to knock people off the list with kind of each path that you take yeah. of adding things, but it's not any one thing that most patients don't need. And maybe that speaks to just the diversity of patients that we see and how they present, um, but everybody has kind of something that would make them potentially ineligible. Well, not everybody, but about 50% of people. No, but I think that's an interesting observation is that each of the inclusion-exclusion criteria, each one of them is knocking off a few different people. Right. And yeah. collectively, and and no one is, not one of them is knocking off, I think, a disproportionate number of people. It's not the lion's right. share. Each one is knocking off a few. And the net result is, what, 40% of people are knocked off. Exactly. And so one thing that we went back and forth with on the analysis was whether to include an older age as one of the ineligibility criteria yes. that we were looking at. Um, and because this was an issue, I think, because solid tumors kind of solid tumor clinical trials often say patients over the age of 75 are automatically out. You can't participate in this clinical trial. And that was something in that Lichtman paper of the Kaiser Permanente analysis that they had included. So we looked at that in our population and it was that that was the single most um, uh, would have been the single most important ineligibility criterion because it was 14 percent of our sure. population was over sure. 75, which is not at all surprising given that the median age of diagnosis of AML is in the late 60s. And so obviously you're going to see a lot of patients that are older. Um, but we ultimately decided not to include that in our, our analysis, um, like as one of the ineligibility criteria and in our multivariable analysis, because 
there has been so much work lately um, with the new drugs that have been approved in AML, like gonadoclax, glastogen, and things like that, where they have said, you know, you're kind of automatically um, not fit for intensive chemotherapy, but you can still get treated um, if you're if you're over age 75. And so we felt like it was would be a little disingenuous to include when there have been some drugs that have been recently approved for that population, whether the drugs are actually being administered to that population. It's a little bit of a different question, but um, they are there and potentially available for you, patients. You don't give Vixios to a single person under 65, is that right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what, yeah. It, yeah, yes, yes, fair enough. So one thing I thought was interesting to me in Table 3, the cytogenetic risk category and the presence of ineligible characteristics, that didn't appear to have any relationship at all. By that I mean um, in both the trial-eligible and ineligible groups, the exact same proportion of favorable, intermediate, and poor-risk cytogenetics. What do, what do you think about that? How do you think about that? I mean, I, I think what that speaks to is um, that the question of ineligibility is not based on the AML diagnosis, but rather on what you may consider the comorbidities that a patient comes into their diagnosis with. Um, And so I, I, yeah, and so, you know, they may have some baseline renal dysfunction and that may make them ineligible, but that doesn't mean that their AML is necessarily going to be worse. Yeah. So um, it may make it more difficult to treat their adverse risk AML if that's the category they end up uh, being in because you may be limited by their renal function, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their their disease is going to be worse. I think what it speaks to is that ineligibility is governed by physiologic reserve, not necessarily biology of cancer, although one might imagine that in the future maybe you do some even broader gene expression profiling analysis or whole genome sequencing to see, you know, is it really the same AML in these subgroups or is it the AML driving the physiologic reserve? But the the analysis you've done to date suggests that the people who are ineligible, it's because they have underlying comorbidities or they have less reserve. Yeah, I think that's a very fair um, and balanced way of looking at <laughs> terminology, yeah. a fair and balanced way of looking at things, because I think that, um, you know, we, we often talk also about the difference between chronologic and biologic age, yes. and it's really hard to tease that out in a lot of patients, and certainly there's been a lot of work um, to try to do some assessments for geriatric AML patients and try to figure out like which of these people is going to be able to tolerate something and benefit from something that another person might not be able to. So I think that's kind of a separate but related issue in terms of the reserve that patients have and how that might um, lead to, to what they're able to tolerate and benefit from. So let's not keep listeners in suspense anymore. Why don't you tell them, you know, what you found? What was the how did ineligibility, what did it What did it mean for survival? So um, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, having at least one ineligible characteristic um, was really associated with a significantly worse overall survival. And you know better than many people how much oncologists love their Kaplan-Meier curves. I but um, I think that there's a, a nice Kaplan-Meier curve just showing that difference yeah. um, in survival that, that we show in the paper. Um, but I think also um, it's important to look at kind of the underlying hazard ratios to take a look at that as well. 
And so one way of putting it with the hazard ratio of 1.79 for having um, an ineligible characteristic, just one um, or more, is that um, you have a 79% uh, greater chance of um, decreased overall survival if you have at least one of those ineligible characteristics. So, you know, that's, that's not great um, to have that. It, it means that really we are, um, for better or for worse, selecting for a worse patient population when patients have that, those ineligible characteristics. Yeah, I mean, I think listeners won't be able to see the Kaplan-Meier unless they pull up your paper. But I think if you looked at this Kaplan-Meier, if this was a Kaplan-Meier for a new drug, it would be the plenary session of the national meeting and people would be standing ovation. Would that fair to say? Um, wow, standing ovation. Well, yes, maybe. But yes, one time uh, I remember in fellowship, I learned about the thumb test. So if there's, yes, you I imagine see. you're at the plenary session at the back of the room, if you can hold your thumb up and there's a difference between the curves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's big enough to fit a thumb. thumb. If it's big enough for the thumb, then it's it's probably worth paying attention to. And there have been many new drugs where I don't know if it meets the thumb test on the Kaplan-Meier curve. <laughs> but I like to think that this Kaplan-Meier curve meets the thumb test. Oh, it definitely does. I, I was taught by Barry Kramer at the NCI that if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the you can give the plenary session. <laughs> and if you and if you can fit a thumb, then you've got a game changer. So I guess that's okay. that's even better. Yeah. So you yeah. can fit a thumb between these curves. Um, and you you were scoffing about standing ovation, but they give standing ovation to serafinib and hepatocellular carcinoma with a two-month survival benefit. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Standing well, ovations come easy in this business. It's like a State I of the Union so. address. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, if you pack the audience with your sympathizers, then you can get a lot accomplished. Well, that's what we've done in oncology. Don't worry. Yeah. We'll, we'll work on that. Um, okay. So then the other thing about the curve that I want you to maybe comment on, if you <laughs> if you want to... Um, is there a tail on the curve? Is there a fraction that's cured? Um, so yes, and I, uh, there is a fraction that are cured. And so we have um, up to five-year survival on the Kaplan-Meier curve. And as it has been well described for patients with AML, um, generally, the, the, even though we don't talk about patients being cured in, in most malignancies until after five years, and the same is true for AML, um, five years without disease, I should say, um, we still, we know that the relapses are likely to occur earlier, usually within the first year, um, and then it kind of tails off, but really if they make it out to about three years, then, then they're generally considered to be cured. And so that is reflected in our Kaplan-Meier curve as well, where um, probably about 40% of patients um, who don't have any of the ineligible characteristics sort of better um, stated population in terms of survival in this analysis they have long-term survival um, and really don't have a step down in the curve. And that number is only about 20% at three years for those who have at least one ineligible characteristic. But they do have a tail. So, yes, I think that, you know, there are always these kind of oddball cases where somebody comes in 10 years after their yeah. transplant yeah. and ends up having a relapse. But really there is a, a majority of patients who, who are cured long-term if they make it to that end point, and that was true in our study. Yeah, and I'm, al I'm always curious about those ultra-rare relapses, if it's the same genetic clone or not, but, you know, that's always a question. Yeah, uh, and I think that's yeah. something that we'll be able to answer more in the future yeah. because a lot of times that was so long ago that they may not have even had the same yeah. level of diagnostic testing that we're sending now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wonder if you might just t tell us, you know, what does this all mean? 
What does this mean to you? What are your take-home lessons? I think it's super provocative and I have a few thoughts, but I want to hear what you think first. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that on the one hand, it's um, not surprising and depressing um, to say that if you, um, through no fault of your own, as a newly diagnosed patient, have one of these ineligibility characteristics, you're not going to do as well after treatment. Um, But at the same time, I think that um, it doesn't mean that we can't try to do better. So I think if we are excluding patients from trials um, based on these ineligibility criteria, then we should have something pretty decent to offer them in terms of standard of care. And when I don't think that's always true, then we really need to come up with some other options. And so I think trying to think about trials that um, may be um, beneficial for patients, whether that's patients who you know, have poor renal function or poor cardiac function and can't receive some of our standard treatments, um, we need to, to do better. So one idea that we sort of put out there at the end of the paper was maybe we can allow um, trials and drug companies to kind of cherry pick their patients based on some of these eligibility criteria that are pretty standard. Maybe we can continue to do that but then maybe when the FDA approves a drug, it's it's kind of a conditional approval where they say, yes, it can be approved, but you have to do one of these basically phase four trials to say when the drug is disseminated in the community, what are the outcomes actually like? And obviously, that requires a, a huge amount of reporting infrastructure and that kind of thing to be able to make it happen. But um, we really need to know what the efficacy of the drugs is and um, the tolerability in the patients that are actually going to be receiving them. Uh, that's terrific. I mean, you know, uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that last point. Um, a couple of years ago, we wrote a paper called Overall Survival in Cancer Trials is the New Surrogate, because an overall survival in cancer trials is a surrogate for overall survival in the real world. And we published in JAM Oncology, and our proposal was just what you say. They should be an accelerated approval, and there should be conditional authorization in all comers. I think one of the other things that jumps out at me is, I mean, it's clearly the case that, you know, well, we were at a time in AML that's very unusual. It wasn't this way 10 years ago. People are calling this the renaissance of AML. We've got glass degib, We've got venetoclax. We've got uh, the IDH inhibitors. We've got right. Bixios and GO. GO is back, finally. Yeah. I've been waiting to pop the champagne for GO yeah. to come back. Um, we've got all these drugs, um, and there are definitely some people whom... I think doctors feel like we're helping with these drugs. We all have that feeling um, when you give somebody one of these therapies and you feel like they do really well. But I think the reality is the drugs inevitably bleed further than the trial population. We're giving right. Vixios to people who didn't, who were not enrolled in that trial. Um, maybe, maybe they didn't even have treatment-related AML. Maybe they, they didn't meet the age requirements. We're giving um, glass degib. Well, not, let's be honest. Not, not many people are giving glass degib, but not many, but not many people are giving glass degib. We could, yeah. we could, we could have been, yeah. but um, but certainly venetoclax. Venetoclax that came out and people wanted to put it in every breakfast cereal. They wanted to slip venetoclax here, there, everywhere. And uh, my favorite part about venetoclax is that it inhibits, you know, obviously BCL two, and BCL two is probably like involved in, um, you know, it interacts with like every other drug ever because it's like a common yeah. pathway. And so, totally. pe- yeah, so people are always like, oh, well, there's a good scientific rationale for adding a BCL two inhibitor. I'm like, yeah, of course that's true. I mean, yeah, any yeah. common pathway is gonna be a good rationale to add it. That doesn't mean that we should do it. Um, but that was a drug that just went off like gangbusters. Um, and uh, I think in part because people felt like the toxicity wasn't as bad as the toxicity actually is when you give it. Right. 
Um, and I guess, I guess what I think the challenge is, is that, um, you know, it'd be interesting for you to do, but those trial ineligible people, I bet if you compare them to trial ineligible people in 1995, 1998 and 20 and 2002, I, I don't know if we've made as much progress for those people as we've made for the trial eligible people. And one wonders if, um, what we're really doing is we have the haves and the have nots, the 60% of AML patients which, to be honest, that's at Fred Hutch. Probably nationally, maybe it's closer to 40% or 30% um, are, that are actually getting drugs that benefit them. And the rest of people, older, frailer, heart failure, comorbidities, we really really don't know what we're doing. Um, and we really don't have know what's best for them. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. I think you've raised a lot of really good and provocative points about you know, who we are disseminating these drugs to. And it comes with a lot of questions about like who, you know, how how the FDA is approving the drugs. And yes. sometimes, you know, for example, for Mitostorin, the original study was done in patients under the age of 60, but the FDA approval doesn't have that limitation. And so speaking of the haves and the have-nots, sometimes it comes down to who your insurance company is um, and whether they're going to approve my score based on what the FDA says or based on whether you fall into the population of the trial. But, you know, if you're a 61-year-old with flip 3 positive AML, sure. my goodness, I would want my sure. even if I wasn't in the, the ratified study the way that um, the drug was studied in the randomized trial. So anyway, I think it, it comes uh, with a lot of questions about how the FDA is, is changing things and approving things and how that, that, you know, has big implications for our patients. But there was a study that was published at, out of MD Anderson a couple of years ago where they actually included patients who were not eligible for standard clinical trials. Yes. And honestly, most of them, um, as I recall from the paper that was published a few years ago, had something where it was like a previous or ongoing solid tumor, and so they weren't eligible for clinical trials. But I think that most treating AML physicians would say the new diagnosis of AML trumps whatever. Yeah, kind of early stage breast prostate. cancer you had like yeah. three years ago, right? Yeah, yeah or the yeah. low grade ongoing prostate cancer yeah. that you're going to get your, yeah. you know, HRT yeah. or sorry, your uh, hormone deprivation, yeah. deprivation therapy for. So. You know, I, I, I think that, um, that really trying to come up with better options for those patients is something that we don't do. And I, I think that the drug companies aren't really interested um, always in targeting those people because it's not nearly as splashy um, because the incremental benefit might be lower for those patients because they have other reasons, you know, the survival endpoint that you were talking about. They have other reasons to have decreased survival. And so I think that, you know, it may not be as big of a change, but, you know, I think they still deserve treatment yes. because we really want the best for our patients. Yes. I mean, I think it's the same thing that people have made points in cardiology, which is that, you know, if you don't enroll any women in studies, you don't know what benefits women. And if you don't right. enroll any older, frailer patients with comorbidities, you don't know what benefits older, frailer patients with comorbidities. And that's yeah. a disservice to those populations that deserve, you know, excellent care and innovation in care, just like... All populations deserve that. For sure. And there was a study um, a couple of years ago um, looking at Medicare claims data, and a lot of older patients don't, at, with AML newly diagnosed don't end up getting any treatment yes. at all. Yes. So they aren't even getting, they aren't even being offered chemotherapy. And that really, I think, 
probably reflects the fact that so many people are treated in the community, um, and it was published before Venetoclax and Glazogib and these drugs that are kind of targeted at older patients. Sure. But, but, but they're not even getting AZA. They're not even getting AZA. They're not right. even getting yeah. AZA. Right. So I think that that's, you know, that's a really, I mean, azacitidine is not really that challenging yeah. to administer um, or, frankly, to tolerate for most patients. And so it's really, you know, I think that we need to come up with options for those treatment for those patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was a great discussion, and I encourage readers to take a look at your paper, which I think is really important and really fills an important niche in this space, which is that you are like extending an observation that was made in solid tumors to hematologic malignancies, particularly AML, um, and making, I think, a superb point. And I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about a couple of other related things, but you kind of alluded to that at the end, which is that, you know, if anything, um, the number of people who are truly ineligible for trials, if you were to look outside of Fred Hutch and broadly at the whole state of Washington, might be higher. There might be some people who get no treatment at all. They're doing even worse. Um, I think in a number of ways, um, your your study is sort of even an optimistic look at the situation, and it might be even more pessimistic, um, which just reinforces the importance, I think, of the points you've made. I guess I just have one last question for you, since you work at the University of Washington. What the hell is G-Clam and why does everyone like it so much up there? What is G-Clam? <laughs> well, it has an alter ego. It's also known as CLAG-M. Oh, CLAG-M. People are more familiar with it by uh -huh. that moniker. Okay. It is very similar to FLAG-IDA. Yes. So it uses a purine analog, cladribine, and then hydrocytarabine, yes. which is something that we are big believers in here, and then an anthracycline. So it's not that different than some other regimens that your listeners may be more familiar with. <laughs> um, but, you know, we published a, an analysis of it um, from a clinical trial that we have done in both relapse refractory and new diagnostications. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time focusing on here is the rate of patients who achieve a complete remission, okay. but more specifically, instead of these complete remissions plus CRH plus CRI plus PR sure. kind of composite yes. endpoints, yes. we focus a lot on the rate of complete remission without MRD or measurable residual disease. I see. And okay. the rate is high. So it's like 70% in newly diagnosed patients to okay. achieve a CR without MRD with G-CLAM. So that's... That, in a nutshell, is why we believe in it. But I see. You can have my colleague, Dr. Anna Halpern, on sometime if you want to talk about it. Is she the champion it. of G-Clam? She, she um, started running this study when she was a fellow, and now she's a junior faculty member here. And so she is very invested in it. And I see. very, very Okay. Well, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but I guess my question for you about MRD and AML. So when you're doing MRD and AML, you're doing flow cytometric AML, MRD based on marrow? Or, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And day yeah. 14 marrow, what day are you looking at? Day 28? Day 28 typically. Okay. So day 28 yeah. marrow. And then how many cells count as, I mean, what's your threshold of MRD positivity? Um, so we use an N positive as opposed to having a, a threshold cutoff. So okay. um, we are kind of, you know, I, I know privileged to be able to say that we have this world-renowned flow cytometry here yeah. with these 8 to 10 colors and yeah. all this other yeah. fancy stuff, but it can be sent here. We do a lot of outside samples, okay. too. Um, but the way that pathologists write on the report is that the sensitivity is conservatively down to 0.1%, but really down to 0 0.01 or 0 0.001% for okay. um, some immunophenotypes. And so it's really... 
you know, it's not as good as some of these molecular tests. Um, but if you don't have that particular molecular abnormality, right, like then right. or whatever, that you can send a really sensitive RT-PCR test, you know, the flow can be applied to more subtypes of, of AML, I think. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Percival, this was a pleasure, a uh, pleasure to talk about this paper. I think, um, you know, I think AML is just, um, you know, such an, such an interesting disease. And it's one of those things that um, leukemia in general, I mean, for people who are, I don't know, early in their careers in medicine, and they want to think about like a, a diagnosis where, you know, a doctor really has to bring their A game. I think it's leukemia. Because when you bring your A game and you do everything perfect, things don't always go as you wish. But when you don't bring your A game, you make any mistakes, you screw up anything, you ignore any detail, you're not meticulous, things definitely don't go well. And and it really pushes you to be really good at being a doctor, I think, and caring about every numerical value, making sure you check on the patient. I mean, you can't be sloppy. Every drug you're giving, bank, you got to check, you know, you can't make any errors. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a high stakes tightrope act. You're nodding. You agree with me that that's one of yeah. the draws of AML. Yeah, I like to think I bring my A game yeah. uh, to work every day. But yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Percival. This was a great, great discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.